This is the Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN. Now, live inside the Matt Black Kia Studios, here's Mike Gill. Sports Bash on your Monday. 97.3 ESPN. What it be? What it be? I'm your host, Mike Gill. Josh Henning producing today's show. You out there. I know we're watching these conference finals, and I'm not sure how you're consuming them and what your uh, reaction is. Is it more frustrating that you are not able to beat Boston and they are miles away from Miami? Or do you look at it in a different light? I want to get into that. Obviously, the Celtics seem to be DOA. No effort last night. They've got nothing. That team is shot right now. No heart, no will, no fight. What does that say about the Sixers? I'm not sure what to read into that and how it even computes, but we'll do our best today. Heat are going to go to the finals. Denver, they're going to the finals. Game four tonight. I think the Lakers have a shot to maybe win this game tonight, but I wouldn't be surprised if both teams sweep, as you're seeing right now. Really, um, a weird situation in the NBA where the number eight seed, the Miami Heat, are about to roll into the finals here. It's something that has never really happened before. You know, when the Sixers started the process, way back in 2013, they started the process, right? And I remember, you know, giving this whole expository on, listen, the whole point is to become one of the best teams during the regular season. If you're not the number one seed, if you're not the number two seed, you really don't have a shot. And in the NBA, that has proven to be accurate. This isn't baseball where you can win 87 games, knock off the team that won 107 games, and then go on to win the World Series. It doesn't happen in basketball. But we're starting to see that change a little bit. The devaluing of the regular season. Now, it's an interesting thing to discuss here because Denver is the number one seed on the other side of the bracket. They are playing the eight seed, though, the L.A. Lakers, who were basically sitting around in the middle of the world, you know, with injury problems all regular season. I think if LeBron James really was healthy all season long, the Lakers probably would have been a top four seed, maybe a five, but they certainly wouldn't have been in the play-in tournament. But... Miami's in a similar situation. People forget Miami went to the Eastern Conference Finals last year, right? Well, this year, people kind of looked at Miami and said, eh, they're just not good. It's not working for them. This is a team that just doesn't have it this year. Well, keep in mind, Miami had a ton of injury issues this year. They had a ton of guys in and out of their lineup all season long. But what I also think it kind of exemplifies is that these regular seasons are meaning less and less and less. You know, everyone's talking about Joe Mazzola. My buddy texted me last night, Mazzola's horrible, they need to fire him. And I'm thinking to myself, the guy's 34 years old, he won 57 games this year, and he's in the Eastern Conference Finals. How bad can he really be? Yes, I get it. He's not Eric Spolstra. And where I defend, you know, the fact that coaching matters, it's the days that you're not playing. And this is where Spolstra is very good. 
Spolstra is very good in the days that you're not playing. And I think this is where Missoula is falling short right now. He does not have this team believing in game night. He does not have this team prepared. He does not have this team. Look, his team is not playing well. This isn't like, hey, Joe Missoula is so outclassed here. They're not making any shots. I mean, take a look at Jalen Brown. This is unbelievable. I was doing some research on Jalen Brown because he killed the Sixers. So did Tatum in Game 7. But Jalen Brown in the Eastern Conference Finals. You ready for this? I mean, how do you win when your star player who's about to get max money is shooting 10% from three-point range and 50% from the foul line? He's got 11 turnovers and 10 assists. He has zero steals and zero blocks. He's shooting 37% from the field. 10% Jalen Brown. 10 from three-point range. I got news for you. I don't care if Red Arbach is on the sideline for the Celtics. They ain't winning with him shooting 10% from three-point range. Look, I'm not going to sit here and defend Missoula. I think they're just out-prepared. But his players are failing him. And... We've had this conversation. Look, the Celtics are better than the Sixers are right now. This isn't like, hey, see, I told you so. The Celtics are better than the Sixers are. It's slim. The margin is slim, but they're better than the Sixers are. But I'll say this. They've had three different coaches, and the same thing keeps happening to them. They've had Brad Stevens, who was supposed to be one of the best coaches in the league. They had Odoka, who was well-regarded and already got another job to be the head coach, and now it's Joe Mazzulla. Look, the same thing, we talk about insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over. The Celtics keep doing the same thing over and over, but they keep changing the coaches. Now they're going to fire a coach again and go on four coaches in four seasons? Uh, I think we got to stop blaming the coach and start wondering if Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum are championship-level players. Is that a duo that you can win a title with? And at this stage of the game, I think the answer is becoming clear. Look, these guys are young players, and maybe they can get over the hump, but they've been in this game how many times? They've been to a finals and four Eastern Conference finals. At what point do you say, maybe they're just not good enough, and it's not Joe Mazzola's fault or Ime Odoko's fault? Or, oh my God, are we really blaming boy wonder Brad Stevens? Is it his fault? They've had three different coaches, but the core has stayed the same. And they keep losing in the same way. When they lose, they get their ass kicked. They don't show up. They quit. This is an indictment on the players there. Because when they lose, they pout. They have bad body language. This is a situation where maybe they just need to move on from one of one of the guys. 609-403-0973. 609-403-0973. Mike, Denver and Miami will be an NBA ratings disaster. I I tweeted that out earlier. Yeah. You remember at the beginning of these, um, the the semifinals, I said, man, the NBA is loving this right now. They're either going to get Boston, L.A. or Philly, L.A. or Philly um, or, or L.A., you know, Miami. Uh, New York was in it. You had in, in the Eastern Conference, you had Philly, Miami, New York, and Boston. All really good markets. Miami's not a great market for television. But you had LA, you had Kevin Durant, you had um Steph Curry. The only team 
you didn't want was Denver, and Denver's going to get in. And the only team you didn't want Denver to match up with is Miami because they're the two worst markets. And the NBA, for people who think the NBA fixes their games, you're not getting the matchup that the NBA wants. You're not getting Boston and L.A. You're getting the worst possible matchup. And somebody tweeted at me, like, who gives a crap about this? I said, well, I think it does have some merit that people think these games are fixed and Guess what? The NBA is not asking for Denver Miami. That is not the matchup they want on television. Like, no way, no how. They would have taken any storyline. Like, Denver, Philadelphia, Jokic, and Bede. Okay, we can play that one. Denver, Boston. Great. We get Boston. People know Boston. It's got a history. Uh, Denver, anybody except for Miami. Miami's the worst TV market of the group. Miami has a history of just not supporting their teams. They have a history of not watching their teams. Philadelphia, New York, Boston, and the East would have been a great matchup for anybody. And then, of course, you had L.A. with LeBron. You had Steph with Golden State. You had Kevin Durant. They had so many great possibilities, and they're getting stuck with this one right now. It's an interesting game, but I'll tell you what, the NBA didn't want it. There's no question about it. Like, if you're one of those conspiracy theorists who think that the NBA fixes these games and the officials are in on it, this was not a good series for you guys, right? So there's a, there's so much that I'm I'm watching these games and I'm trying to, like, put into in my mind, what does it mean for where this Sixers organization is? You're that close to beating Boston. Like, is it better that you got beat by Boston and now that Boston is getting ripped by Miami? Are you saying, well, maybe we weren't as close as we thought we were? Because I think most people thought, man, Boston's the best team. You took them seven games. You're right there with Boston. But now are you opening your eyes even wider to say, man, not only are we better than Boston, we're far away from where Miami is right now. And how do you get to where Miami is? Look, Miami's got a roster that if you're looking up and down the roster, you're thinking to yourself, and I know the anti-processors out there are like, see, Miami didn't have to lose games on purpose to get good. And no, you know why? Because Miami's able to get Jimmy Butler. Miami's able to attract a top-level free agent. Now, we've always had questions about Jimmy Butler. To me... Is Jimmy Butler, like, to me, I said this earlier, a buddy of mine, we were texting back and forth. Jason Tatum's probably one of the ten best players in the league. The problem is, you got to be one of the best three to five players in the league to win a title. Jason Tatum's not one of the best three to five players. He's one of the ten, and ten's not good enough. I think the problem with Jimmy Butler has kind of been, he's not one of the top ten. He's not one of the three to five, but right now he's playing like it. And that's right now a big difference. But the rest of that team... You know, Bam out of bio, he's an all-star level player, but he, it's a weird dynamic. That roster, you know how many guys they have that are on two-way deals? Guys that they just found, like, in the second round and guys that they found um, as undrafted free agents. I mean, they've got a lot of guys that just kind of came out of nowhere. We know the Duncan Robinson story, and then last year he struggled. Max Strauss is just, I mean, where did they find him? Gabe Vincent, another guy. Gabe Vincent. And the funny part is, Gabe Vincent, who has had a great playoffs, it feels like every night that Gabe Vincent is hitting a big shot. And Gabe Vincent is a guy who generally does not shoot the ball very well. 
You know, in the regular season this year, Gabe Vincent hit 33% of his threes. Translation, not good. (laughs) Not good. 33%. But in the playoffs, he's shooting 38%. When you have the secondary players like Gabe Vincent, for God's sakes, elevating their game, you take your team to another level. We talk about Max uh, in these playoffs. In the regular season, he shot 35%. You know what he's shooting in the series against Boston? 44% from three. I mean, come on. You talk about this, that, and the other thing. He's hitting 44% of his threes in the last 10 games. In the regular season, he hit 35%. That's 10% better. I mean, jeez. You talk about... Holy mackerel, taking your game to another level. That's what you're doing right there. So Gabe Vincent takes his game. to, And that's how you really do what they're doing right now. When you have guys who have – Duncan Robinson this year, 32% from three. 32%. In the last two games against Boston, he hasn't missed. He's 100%. In the playoffs, Duncan Robinson is shooting 44% from three-point range. 44. Actually, it's almost 45. He's 44.7. So all of these guys have gone up a notch. All of these. And Jimmy Butler, by the way, you want to hear some numbers. I mean, Jimmy Butler in the regular season shot 35% from three. Now, he's only shooting 35% from three in the postseason, but in his last 10 games, he's 50%. So he has he's on a heater right now. These postseason, Jimmy Butler's averaging 30 points a game. You know what Jimmy Butler averaged in the regular season? 23. I mean, he's getting seven points a game more in these playoffs. That's what you need to do, though. We talked about it with Embiid. Embiid scored, what, 33 a game during the regular season. Well, to elevate your game, you're going to have to get up around 38 points a game. He didn't do it. Jimmy Butler right now is taking that jump from really good regular season player to now I can carry my team to another level. You're looking at the Boston team and saying, what has happened to them? What has happened to them is, well, not the same players. You're getting regular season efforts in the Eastern Conference Finals. And that is not a recipe for winning the series. And I think, quite frankly, right now, I think Boston is out of gas and they are done. I don't think they even want to come back home and have to try to play again. You look at Tatum. In the regular season, Tatum, 30 points a game. In these playoffs, he's down to 27. So he's, his average has dropped. His three his playoff three-point percentage is less than his regular season three-point percentage. So you're just like taking a couple of guys. Everyone on Miami's has gone up. Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, they have either stayed the same or gone down. Jalen Brown averages 27 points a game in the regular season. In the postseason, he's down to 23. In the regular season, you know, you cannot have a guy who takes that big of a drop if you're depending on him to win an Eastern Conference Finals for you. And I think 
That is one thing that Miami is getting here, and it's something that both Philadelphia, Philadelphia's guys came up small. Their regular season numbers did not improve. Joel Embiid at the top of that list. James Harden at the top of that list. Those two guys, uh, Embiid got worse, and, and Harden stayed about the same. Miami's, their players have stepped on the pedal and accelerated right past their regular season numbers. And I think that's why the Heat right now are in position to possibly, look, someone's going to win a title this year that completely was unexpected. I know Denver was the number one seed, but I don't think anybody really believed in, although about a month ago you and I had this conversation and I said, Denver, I totally believe it. Yeah, you said Denver, I said the Warriors, and I, I've admitted on the radio I was wrong about that. So, I mean, I'm I'm already capitulating and giving in to the Nuggets are probably going to win a championship at this point, I mean, the way they're playing. Well, somebody's going to win a championship that we didn't think could do it. Someone's going to win, Jokic or Butler, that we weren't really sure if they could be the best player on the best team. And right now, you're getting somebody who is entering another stratosphere of the NBA lore right now. Butler and Jokic are now going to another level. They were both on a level. We were I mean, Jokic won two MVPs, and we were like, eh, can you win a championship with Jokic? How many people? You can't win a championship with a center. A big guy can't beat. Well, he's debunking that right now. Yeah, well, the the, the, peop, the people who were doing the whole can you win with a center people are, are typically the people who don't actually remember anything about history. You know, they're, before Jordan won his championships, remember the idea was is you can't win with a guard. Your guard can't be – the centerpiece. You you got to have big men and Jordan. Yeah, but this, that you're, you're talking about times. a different era. But, you're you're no, comparing this is, era like, to an era gone by. No, no. I'm, what I'm saying is, you know, history shows us that you know, the the moment you say that fill in the blank can't win a championship because of this or that, they go on to win a championship. You know what I mean? Well, listen. I always said if you have the big man, okay, like this era right now, I think you know no team has really won in recent years with the big man being the centerpiece of their roster. You're what? going back to saying, well, you've done it in the past. Yeah, in the past. Well, that style of play is no longer really No, no, what, what, you I, see. what I was saying is is that history has showed us in the NBA that every time people say this team can't win because the last several years a certain type of team has won, the script has flipped. And to me, that's why I don't get too hung up on the you can't win them with a big man or can't do this or that because – History has shown us in the NBA that the moment you sit there and say, this can't happen, that's exactly what happens. Well, and this is what I said when the Sixers started the whole process. One of the thought processes was the league was changing. Mm -hmm. Right when the Sixers started to do what they were doing, you had kind of LeBron leaving the Cavs. And you had the Warriors becoming the Warriors that we now know. That we know now, right. And the league was getting away from the big man. And going to three-point shooting, more guard-oriented, positionless basketball. Right. And I always said back then, the team, somebody's going to have to out-warriors the Warriors or, and that's hard to do, to out-warriors the Warriors is you got to find guys who can consistently connect from long range. Yeah, it's basically impossible. Nobody has really been able to out-warriors the Warriors. When the Warriors have lost, they've had like injury, uh, stuff like that. The other option is to find somebody that other teams have to change what they're doing because of what you're doing. Right. Like, for example, that's how the Warriors became the Warriors in the first place was it wasn't that they had this 
LeBron-level superstar. It was because they had a style of play that forced the whole league to change what they do. Right. Teams were trying to out-warriors the Warriors, and they couldn't do it. Right. So the next option is to do what? Do something that the Warriors have to do different to tr- because of what you're doing. Right, and that's why, for example, the Raptors won that one title. Is because Well, Kawhi, the Raptors won that title because the Warriors had injuries. Well, it was also because the Raptors presented a specific problem. They wouldn't have won that title had the Warriors been healthy. Sure about that? I'm a thousand percent sure, and I love that Raptors team. I was a big Kawhi fan, and I had the Raptors winning that title. If you remember, I picked the Raptors to win that title because... The Warriors were not healthy. I would have said the Warriors were probably going to lose either way because I think there was too much dissension in that team at that point. Well, they had a lot of injuries, and I think a lot of people realized, hey, uh, the Raptors team was a it was a good, solid team. I love that Raptors team. They were gritty. They, I loved Kawhi that year. I didn't like the fact that they beat the Sixers, but I did pick them to win that title that year. I had them essentially all year long. They were my pick to win the title, and in in part because the, the Warriors were were banged up that season. I think the Warriors healthy would have beat that Golden uh, that Toronto team. We don't know, but it's just my thought. That being said, teams back then were trying to out Warriors the Warriors. The, right. the the Houston Rockets were trying to out Warriors the Warriors, and they couldn't do it. Yeah, they got close. They didn't have enough shooting. Yeah, they, they got that seventh game, and they had the worst three-point shooting game in NBA history. Right. If you're going to win in that style, you better be hot on the seventh game or the elimination game. Because if you're not, you're going home. And the Warriors' whole thing was, yeah, we might not shoot well in game two or game four or game six, but we're going to shoot our best in four of those games. So you're going to have to outshoot us in one of those games to flip that series from four for us to four to you and very few teams were able to do it and that brings us back to what we're seeing right now with the celtics and the heat the celtics are just not making shots they're playing really poor basketball and the miami heat are well they're in fuego well we just talked about it every single player on the heat essentially butler uh max Struess, um caleb martin they're all Playing Gabe way Vincent. over Gabe Vincent is is unbelievable. That guy stinks in the regular season. He shoots thirty two percent for three. He's out here. He's Reggie Miller. But you look at him. Look and go to Denver. Yeah, the kid Brown has been unbelievable for them. Bruce Brown. Yeah. Bruce Brown has been unbelievable for them. KCP has been good too. Well, and I. It's so frustrating. Some of the Bruce Brown. He's a second round pick. He's not a guy that anybody's heard of. But you take a look. At the regular season, he averages 11 points a game. In the playoffs, it's only 12, but, he, man, he has made some huge – but he's still – he's a role player whose points per game in the Lakers series, he's up to 13. He's playing his role perfectly. But he's excelling his role. He's going past your expectations. Sometimes right. you're just – you know, the guy that kills me, okay, you go back to um, the 2018 draft. The guy I wanted in that draft was Michael Porter Jr. Oh, okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that draft was really weird. I mean, but Porter Jr. ended up – basically, I I don't want to – this is a weird comparison. That was the whole – the Sixers ended up – that was the year that uh, they traded Bridges. Oh, Mikel Bridges. It was the Zaire Smith. So that whole draft. But Porter kept falling, and he kept falling, and he kept falling. And he was on the board at number 10 when the Sixers – uh, turned to pick. Michael Porter Jr., if he's not hurt, he probably is 
maybe the number two, three, four pick in the draft. He's top five player in the pick, but he had that back problem. Yeah, he was like one of the. I think he was wasn't he like the top recruit in the country? He was. He's constantly been. Yeah, and that's the guy I wanted. I, I'm going to say something that people are going to be like, "What, Michael Porter Jr." is kind of what you hoped Ben Simmons was. He's a 6'10 guy. He can handle the ball. He sh- well, Simmons doesn't shoot three. But he does. But but he does. But he's 6'10. He can score. He rebounds. He assists. He's he, he just he does everything. Yeah, he's an underrated ball handler, too. And Porter is kind of like that 6'10 kind of... You, you, you're like, hey, that could have been what Ben Simmons could have been. Absolutely. Porter was on the board when the Sixers picked at number 10. They went with Mikael Bridges. They ended up trading. We know what happened there. They really messed up that draft because pick 11, Shea Gilgis Alexander, they could have had him. Michael Porter, they could have had him. Oof. A lot of mistakes in that one draft class. Actually, I got to admit, one guy I liked, thankfully, got picked before was Kevin Knox. I was a big Kevin Knox guy in that draft. Love Kevin Knox in that draft. The funny part is the guys I didn't like in that draft were Jaron Jackson, Mo Bamba. Um, Wendell Carter has been okay. He's been okay, yeah. I, I'm not Those guys are all the higher pick. But that being said, the the Heat right now, all their players are excelling ex- expectations. And the Celtics, they are all taking a step back. All right, get your text messages sent in, 609-403-0973. McGarry's coming up. Bob Wankel's going to talk some fills. we got football at 4. Me and you hanging out till 6. Sports Pass Live, 97.3 ESPN. Now, Spash on 97.3 ESPN. 232, got some text message I want to chew on here. 609-403-0973. Mike, if you put Joel Embiid in the post playing back to the basket, even as little as 50% of the time, he would dominate the league even more than he does now. Who would stop him? But it doesn't seem that he wants to be there. That's the dilemma, Matt from Kate May. Two things, Matt. One, you are assuming that if Joel Embiid is down in the paint all game long, that he's the same type of player. Because now you're asking a guy who excels in other areas of the game to go down there, and he's been hurt a lot. You go down into the paint, you end up getting beat a lot. You get beat up on. You got guys kind of leaning on him. Now he gets more tired. You got people who already complain that he is a guy that, you know, runs out of gas. He's a big dude. I mean, he's seven foot tall, a hundred, uh, 280 pounds. I listen. We all, I, I, what I'd say is like, I don't want to limit Embiid. I don't want to limit what makes him great. What makes him great is that he is versatile. But what I will say is this in the big moments, he's got to be able to adapt to what's going on in that series. It seems that Embiid wants to be the same player against every team. Some series he is fine against the Nets doing what he did, but against Boston, he might need to evolve or be more apt or willing to go down into the post because they're smaller. Now, when they went with Robert Williams, they got a little bit bigger, but he should still be able to dominate Robert Williams. I don't want to see Embiid be something that he's not. What makes Embiid great, Embiid is a unicorn. He's a special player. There's nobody else out there that does what he does. He's that big, that great. I mean, he's a, people have said it. he's like a, a mix of Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant. Well, you don't want Kobe Bryant to not be Kobe Bryant. 
right? If you had Shaq and Kobe, you'd say, I want both those guys. Well, I get both of those guys with Joel Embiid. The problem is I don't get him in the biggest moments. So in the biggest moments, he needs to decide who he wants to be. Does he want to be Shaq or does he want to be Kobe? Because when Kobe's not working, he needs to become Shaq. And if Shaq's not working, he's got to be, luckily for him, he's not a one-trick pony. That's what makes Embiid great. We're just trying to limit Embiid to this one-trick pony. No, 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 no. I don't want him to be a one-trick pony. I just want him to understand when to be Shaq and when to be Kobe. And I don't think he has a full understanding of that yet. I don't think he understands when he needs to be that guy and when he needs to be the other guy. And quite frankly, I have no problem saying to this point, Joel Embiid's lack of basketball IQ. And he's a very smart guy. From all accounts, he's very smart. He knows the game. He studies the game. It's doesn't show up in key moments a lot. He makes too many uh, mistakes in key times of the game. And look, he's playing against a lot of guys who were playing basketball when they were like seven years old. And they have that intuition. The, The great, great players have that extra intuition. They have that extra skill, that sixth sense, that I think is what's holding Embiid back right now. He doesn't have... The, the high-level basketball intuition. And I don't know how you get that without repetition, repetition, repetition. Look, he's gotten way better from where he was four years ago in the playoffs. We talked about the Toronto series. He had eight turnovers in games because he didn't know what to do when a double team was coming. Well, he's gotten way better. Somebody texted in. How many times has Embiid had nine assists in a game? Well, He has a career-high 13 assists in a game. He's had 10 multiple times. So he has gotten better, but he's not there yet. He's not there yet. And I think that is the thing that is the hardest thing to come to terms with is can Joel Embiid get that sixth sense, that intuition, that you either have it or you don't sometimes. Will he get enough repetition? Has he gotten enough repetition to get to another level? I don't know, man. I don't know the answer to that question. I also have to wonder how much of what goes on with Embiid has to do with the people around him. You know, we saw what happened when PJ, PJ Tucker got in his ear. He picked up his game. He he kind of made a turnaround from where he was for about a game and a half. You have to wonder, you know, if, and I'm saying if, you had someone who was a better communicator with Embiid than James Harden or if the next head coach is somebody who helps him be make that next step better than Doc Rivers. You know, like, for example, the the example I always use, and people are probably tired of it, but, you know, Giannis didn't want the Bucks to fire Jason Kidd. But then he won MVPs with Budenholzer and won a title. Is the next head coach of the Sixers, can that be that guy for Embiid? I don't know. Um, what do you make of, and this is for everybody out there, What do you guys make of, apparently, and I was doing some reading up on this over the weekend. I was trying to go back to when the Sixers hired Doc Rivers. Mm -hmm. And what I came across is that Embiid's pick apparently was Mike D'Antoni. That he was a fan of hiring Mike D'Antoni. What do we make of Embiid? Wants Mike D'Antoni to be the coach. I question his judgment. That's my first instinct. 
Why why would you want a guy Well he had Mike D'Antoni on the staff for one year. Okay, one year. You're around this guy for a year. Did he feel like I got enough knowledge from this guy that this is the guy that can maybe take me to another level? It sounds like he may not have the best judgment in beat. Well, I'm not I don't think it's fair to, to question it. Why not? Mike D'Antoni's won a lot of games. We, we're, not, we're talking about a guy like he's won 10 games. Well, I mean, you just were talking about earlier in the show about, you know. And listen, I'm not, my pick was not Mike D'Antoni, but this is previous to me going back and doing some more research and seeing that Embiid was lobbying for Mike D'Antoni. Okay, well, but didn't we just say earlier that just because Missoula won a bunch of games in the regular season, but now he's not winning the postseason, Well, right? I don't think Mike D'Antoni is a bad coach. I think what it sets is a bad precedence because of the optics of hiring the guy that were perceived to be James Harden's guy. Mm-hmm. But maybe James Harden's guy is also Joel Embiid's guy. And if that's the case, you're now pleasing the two most important people, aren't you? You are, but should you be? Should, well, yeah, you I'm, be? I'm trying to appease those before <laughs> I appease uh, Tobias Harris. Well, naturally, but I mean, it doesn't... Well, whom else am I trying to appease? Well, I mean, do you have to appease them? I think if you want to try to win a championship, you better have your two stars. I don't say they should have, they should tell you who the coach is. I think they should at least be on board. But being on board is different than hiring a guy just because that's the guy Embiid wants. Isn't it? Not necessarily, but if Embiid is saying, hey, I'm cool with this guy, and Harden we know is cool with that guy. Doesn't it make you say, you know what? This might be the guy that gets the best out of both of my two problems. Now, I don't know, because he didn't get the best out of James Harden. He's already had James Harden in big games and didn't get the most out of him in big games. He got the most out of him in 82 games. He got the most out of him in the games that don't matter. Sports Pass Live, 97.3 ESPN. Nick Nurse, by the way. Interview with the Sixers, but if they want Nick Nurse, they might have to move on him quick. We'll explain coming up on the Sports Bash Live 97.3 ESPN. Mike McGarry from the Press of Atlantic City. He joins me next. Now, Bash on 97.3 ESPN. Mike McGarry, Press of Atlantic City, pressofatlanticcity.com. Looking back at the weekend that was, what's the difference between what Miami does, Boston, Philadelphia, why are the the Miami Heat ready to go to an NBA championship right now? Let's bring in Mike McGarry from the Press of the Lake City. We got that. Got some other thoughts I want to get from him as well. He joins us on a Sports Bash Monday. What's up, Michael? You got me. Hello. Oh, yes, I do have you. There Mike. we go. There yeah. we go. I did not have you. Okay. My bad. My bad. So the Miami Heat are in the, going to go to the finals. They're up 3 nothing. When you're watching them, what do they have that Boston, Philadelphia don't? Mental toughness. I mean, that's just what, what it comes down to. And it comes. It starts at the top of the organization with Pat Riley. I saw a remarkable statistic today on Twitter. I forget who tweeted it out. But Pat Riley, as a player, coach, and executive, uh, is, has participated in 25% of, the M, of all the NBA finals ever held. And obviously he knows what it takes to win, and he's built an organization that does win, and it starts with mental toughness. They're just mentally tougher than other teams that they play, and that's a great quality to have in the postseason. Yeah, I mean, what does this say for the regular season? And two different sports. I, I mean, I think that's what I look at it. I mean, there's 
there's postseason basketball and there's regular season basketball, and uh, there's a lot different. It, it, it's played differently. It's officiated differently. It, it's almost two different sports, and I think we're seeing firsthand what succeeds in the regular season doesn't always succeed in the postseason. So you have to figure out a way to sort of navigate and survive the regular season to get to the postseason. But once you're there, uh, you know, to me, they're two different sports. It's apples and oranges. Mike McGarry is with me for the press of Atlantic City. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're watching these and you got a guy like Jimmy Butler who, you know, look, I don't know where you would have Butler on your list of the top players, but I think in the regular season, you're looking at a guy and say, yeah, he's like a top 20 player. Right now, I mean, he's probably a top three to five player in the league during these playoffs. And I guess someone's going to win a title, Jokic or uh, Jimmy Butler, that nobody thought really was the best player on the best team. Yeah, I mean, if you look at Jimmy Butler, I, I agree with you. He is, you know, in the regular season, he's probably somewhere in that 20 to 30 list. Put him in there. Uh, and, and obviously, uh, the Joker, I think, is a much, much better player than, than, uh, Butler in the regular season, but you're right. Right now, if you were going to go what we've seen in the postseason, I'd go Jokic one, Butler two. I mean, it's amazing to see what he's done in the postseason. And and this isn't just an anomaly with the Miami Heat or Jimmy Butler. I mean, this is a team that went to the NBA final in the bubble, was in the NBA Eastern Conference final last year, and came up uh, a Jimmy Butler three-pointer hitting the front of the rim away from going to the final, and now they uh, are poised to go to the final again. So You'd have to say that the regular season being the number eight seed was more the anomaly than the Heat's postseason run. Yeah, uh, Mike, I want to get your thoughts on some coaching stuff here because uh, Nick Nurse is a finalist in Milwaukee. If you're the Sixers, you might have to rush your process. But I want to say this. I didn't realize this. For some reason, I did not remember this, but I'm looking back. I was doing some research over the weekend. I wanted to go back to the Rivers hire. And I'm finding a lot of stuff that Joel Embiid wanted Mike D'Antoni to be the coach back then. If Embiid once wanted D'Antoni then, and you know Harden would want to play him, does it seem that I would have appeased Joel Embiid that you got to go after Mike D'Antoni? Is that the right move? Yeah, I, I don't think so. At this point, I think both Embiid and Harden have kind of forfeited the right to pick the next coach. Now, the only problem with that is Daryl Morey gets to pick the right the next coach, and I don't, I'm not sure I believe it in his judgment 100%. So I don't know how comfortable I am with that. But I think at this point, you know, Embiid and, and Harden, I, I, you know, I don't know if they get to sign off on the coach at, at this point, you know, uh uh, it hasn't worked in the past, and, and I think they've just got to get somebody in there that can improve this team and maximize the potential of this team. And again, what I've said before is I think it's more of a roster problem than the coach problem. So I'm not, I'm probably not changing my opinion of the Philadelphia 76ers and, and their prospects for next season based on who the coach is. I'm more interested in what the roster looks like next season. Yeah, I mean, that's see, D'Antoni to me was off my list altogether because it showed me you were appeasing Harden and what was the message to Embiid. And I agree with you. It's not because Harden and Embiid, you don't let them make the decision, but don't you at least want your two? If you're stuck, I don't want to say stuck with these two guys. You can do a lot worse than being stuck with Joel Embiid and James Harden. But if you do have those two players as your centerpieces, don't you want to have a coach that they are at least signing off on? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a partnership, of course. I mean, it's not, you know, it, it is 2023. If uh, you're not going to hire somebody who they, you know, despise or dislike. But uh, of the top candidates, D'Antonio, Nick Nurse, uh, Frank Vogel, uh, Boutonizer, I don't think there's any one of those guys that Hardiner B could stand up and say, well, I- I'm going to refuse to work with this guy. I think all of them have uh, excellent qualifications. And again, to me, it comes down to the, to the roster and improving that roster. And to me, it's about getting another star in here because clearly Embiid and, and Harden do not have what it takes to get their team over the hump in the playoffs. And I think it's unrealistic to expect them to. You know, one thing I kind of keep hearing is, can Embiid go to another level? Can he do this? Can he do that? Mike, he's 30. He'll be 30 next playoffs. How many guys improve at the age of 30? I mean, he's closer to the end of his career than the beginning of his career. He's not 21, 22, 23 anymore. Joel Embiid is what Joel Embiid is. This team needs another player in here to get him over the hump. The answer isn't on the current roster. Yeah, we're talking with Mike McGarry from the Press of Atlantic City. And, yeah, you look at, uh, the. you know, if I was to say to you, you look at this uh, offseason, obviously the uh, Harden's going to opt out and then. But today, May 22nd, your intuition, will Harden be back or someplace else? I think he's got, I think he's going to be back. I think they can give him the most money and I don't think they can let him walk. You know, he had a pretty good regular season. He led the league in assists. He won game one and game four for them. I know we have the picture of game six and game seven in our minds. I know we have the, you know, the preconceived notion of James Harden being disgruntled, forcing his way out of Houston, forcing his way out of Brooklyn. His performances in the clutch are so disappointing, you know, against Miami last year. But I don't think you can let him walk away. I mean, one thing I've heard a lot of people talking about is the Sixers having a pause year next year or, or taking a step backwards to take a step forward two years from now. Again, I come back to Joel Embiid is 30 years old. How many more years does he have left as a top uh, top impact player and is he going to accept if you let James Harden walk away and you tell Joe Embiid hey Joel we're taking a step back next season you know well he might say okay well if you're not going to try to win I want out of here you know trade me to a place where I can win he's 30 again he's closer to the end than the beginning Mike McGarry from the Press of Atlantic City. And, of course, uh, the NBA playoffs continue tonight. Lakers looking to avoid elimination, and they'll have that game for you tonight right here on 97.3 ESPN. Phils, of course, have won two in a row. They're getting ready to play Arizona, the Diamondbacks. They've won two straight. Are they turning the corner out there? Yeah, they have turned the corner a little bit in the fact that they couldn't keep losing like they were losing. They, every baseball team comes to a point in the season where, although I know it's early, you have to keep up with the race. I know it's a marathon, but you can't fall a mile behind, right, and expect to make it up in, in miles 24, 25, and 26. So they had to get some wins this weekend. They did. But to me, and this is what I kind of wrote about uh, today for PressofAC.com is, you know, every fifth day they've got a question right now is who's going to be a starter. And I don't know how consistently you can win if every fifth day you have a big question mark on the pitching mound. Yeah, they're going to have to figure out what to do there. And, of course, uh, Mike is back on Wednesday. We'll take a little deeper look at where the fills are then. And he joined us here on the Sports Pass Live on 97.3 ESPN. Thank you, Michael. All right, Michael. We'll see you down the road. Thank you. Mike McGarry, PressOfAtlanticCity.com. He's probably out getting ready for the state baseball playoffs. You can watch Vineland and Central on our website, 973ESPN.com. 
Coming up, we'll talk some baseball. Bob Wankel has observations on the Phillies after 45 games. Well, really, 46 games, but since the weekend hit number 45, 45 is a good round number. Observations on the Phillies after 45 games. They've won two straight. Got something yesterday out of Walker. You got something yesterday out of Turner. Are you starting to see this team? And I tweeted something over the weekend that got some pushback. Pretty interested to see where Phillies fans are after 45 games. 22 and 24. They are two games back of the wild card race. 45-game observation. Bob Wankel crossing broad next. This is the Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN. Now, live inside the Matt Black Kia Studios, here's Mike Gill. All right, Phil's lineup is out. It is brought to you by Clark's Moving and Storage with a wide variety of residential and commercial moving services. They offer storage solutions. 609-889-0780 now. 455 North uh, Railroad Avenue, Rio Grande. Clark's moving in storage. Brings you today's Phillies lineup. It's uh, Turner Castellanos, Harper, Real Muto, Schwarber, Bohm, Stott, Harrison at third, Guthrie in center. Wheeler is your pitcher tonight. There's a doozy. Harrison back in the lineup, Guthrie in center. You got Castellanos still in the two hole. I guess they're going to keep doing that. That's a. Well, Cassianos is one of the guys who was actually going. They moved him from four to two. So I guess uh, we'll discuss that. And more observations, 45 games, really 46. But who's counting because the weekend was here? Bob Wankel, Crossing Broad's observations at Crossing Broad for 45 games. The weekend, they won two in a row. What do you think of the lineup today, Darren? Oh, fans are going to love this lineup, Mike. <laughs> it's uh, there's, a, there's a lot going on here with this lineup. Uh, the, the big takeaway that I have is that the, the Phillies hate Brandon Marsh. I mean, they just, they, they must, they must not like this guy. Uh, anytime you can get Josh Harrison and his 192 batting average and 515 OPS in the lineup on back to back days, you got to do it, you know? <laughs> well, was it like, you know, I guess yesterday they were talking about that Harrison, you know, he had, had about 500 bats in the past. He's not getting this much at bats and that that's contributing to the fact that he doesn't play enough. So his numbers are not really fair. Yeah, I guess I can go to that for an extent. Uh, I, I will say this. I think the Phillies have to kind of assess what they have in him. Um, I, I, but I, I think the writing's sort of on the wall. When you had the injury to Reese Hoskins and Edmundo Sosa kind of got elevated into that everyday role, you would have thought that that would have opened the door for a player like Josh Harrison to get a little bit more time, whether as a, a part-time starter or take a, a, a bulk majority of bench bat, uh, at-bats from the right side. And that hasn't happened. So the Phillies could be kind of internally looking at this saying, we might need to upgrade here. We have to find out if this guy has anything left. What can he give us? Let's give him back-to-back days here in the lineup, see if he can do anything. He didn't do anything yesterday. He hasn't done anything all year. So I almost kind of look at it and wonder if there's a little bit of a like a trial run for him here with extended playing time. And if he can't get going, I think the Phillies are a couple of weeks away from having to make a decision on him. Uh, Bob, let's look at uh, the lineup, uh, as you mentioned, with uh, Turner uh, back at the top. Is this going to be where we envision him kind of settling back into? Yeah, it was when they when they went out and did the the deal for Trey Turner, the, the idea was that he was going to be the leadoff man moving forward. That they finally, after a decade long plus search for a competent leadoff hitter, had their guy, and it didn't materialize. Now, 
I have a couple issues with this. Number one, he's still trying to hit his way out of a prolonged slump. You talk about 45, 46 games into the season. He's been, he's been terrible and he's really struggled against left-handed pitching. One of the things I wrote on the story today in Crossing Broad is you go back and look at his numbers against lefties from 2019 through 2022. We're talking about a four year sample. And I know there was an abbreviated year in 2020. So let's call it a three and a half year sample. He hit 340 against left handed pitching. He's hitting 207 against lefties so far this season. So you got to think at some point he gets going here a little bit, but I look at it and he just doesn't see enough pitches. His at bats for the most part have been non competitive. I thought yesterday he made some strides in the right direction after his day off on Saturday, but you know, I don't know if this is a matter of we're facing another lefty. We're going to get Bryson Stott down in the order. We still plan to hit him leadoff. It'll be interesting to see what they do with their lineups the remainder of the week. Uh, or if this is a, hey, we want Trey Turner his way out of it, and we're going to show a lot of confidence in him, and we're going to put him back in the leadoff spot. We'll see. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting one. I, I tweeted out uh, yesterday, like, hey, if you think Turner and Schwarber are going to struggle all season long, that's going to be a problem. But if they get back to the you know the numbers on the back of the bubblegum card, those guys are going to get extremely hot here and start to carry this team maybe through the summertime. What I don't get about their lineup construction right now, it's not about, hey, it's May 21st. How do we beat the Arizona Diamondbacks tonight? I mean, that's part of the consideration. But I think that if you're a team that is looking to make a deep playoff run, wants to be a championship contender, you have to figure out what it is you have in your best players. And so I find it somewhat alarming now in back-to-back days. And I know Brandon Marsh is going through it right now. He struggled in May, still walking. His on-base percentage has been okay. But I just kind of wonder, like, you get into October and you're in the NLDS and you're facing a tough lefty. Is, is Brandon Marsh not in your lineup at that point? Like, do you not believe in him to produce against left-handers on a consistent basis? And if you don't, then you're basically telling me he's a platoon player. And then you better address that need come the trade deadline because Dalton Guthrie isn't going to be the yeah. answer from the right well, side. Well, I guess Pache was the guy that they were hoping, and he had started to come around, and then he ends up getting hurt. I don't know how much faith you can and how much time you can reinvest in Pache when he comes back. Yeah, I mean, listen, he played for roughly two and a half weeks, three weeks with this team. It was such a limited sample size that there were a lot of encouraging things that you saw from him. But I'm not ready to say with any certainty whatsoever that he can be that right-handed complement to a player like Marsh. What's interesting is Marsh has actually been about as good against left-handed pitching as he's been against right-handed pitching this season. The disparity in the splits isn't all that significant. I am very surprised with Stott back in the lineup tonight that they're going back-to-back days with Marsh down. Uh, Bob Wankel crossing broad. He's got observations. Uh, Philly's 45 games in. Bryson Stott, you know, he had the, the big uh, shot yesterday, and, you know, they moved him all over the place. But he obviously didn't start yesterday. He had the pinch hit home run. But what is Stott for this team? Where should he be for this team? Because if you're going to go Turner 1, Castellanos 2, are you looking at Stott at, as a seven eight nine hitter? Uh, what do you think about what Stott should be for this team? Yeah, I mean, I think that in a perfect world, when the Phillies mapped out this starting lineup early in the season, you looked at him as a guy that would probably hit seventh or eighth for you. And I'm okay with that. But one of the things that I wrote about today was, like, we look at Bryson Stott and we talk about the timeliness, the it factor. He gets a lot of big hits for this team. And he grinds his way through at bats. It's one of the things that people love to say about Bryson Stott as a hitter. He's, he's a grinder. And he makes pitchers work. And that's true. One of the things that I wrote was that only 10 batters in the National League have seen more pitches per plate appearance this season than Bryson Stott. So he's seeing a high volume of pitches on an at-bat-to-at-bat basis. 
What's crazy about it, though, is he's only walked nine times this year. If you look at the 10 guys in front of him, they all have at least 16, 17 walks. A lot of them have walked in the 30s. Bryson Stott has nine. There's only 11 players in the National League. I'm sorry, in Major League Baseball, have walked less frequently than Bryson Stott this year. So he's seeing all these pitches, and it just hasn't translated to walks. If he can even get an incremental bump in those numbers, his on-base percentage shoots into like the 350s, 360s, and then you're talking about a viable leadoff hitter. So I think he checks a lot of boxes, and I think that he's going to evolve and add this into his game. And I think he can hit at the top of the order. He doesn't need to in this lineup, but I do think he has it in him. Yeah, well, I, that was going to be my question. I mean, this is a team that went to the World Series last year. Is Bryson Stott the number two hole hitter or a leadoff hitter on a team that's in the World Series, I guess is the question. Yeah, I think that that's what you're, you're looking at, right? I think you're looking about upside. You said, this, isn't about, this isn't about beating Arizona on Monday. This is big picture. Like, what's the best spot for this guy to get us the furthest? Yeah, I, I think that's a, a fair question. I think in a perfect world, your, your lineup's long enough that you have a really good option that's a nag at the bottom of your order, a tough out. If, if you get a guy like Bryson Stott grinding through a bats, has a little bit of pop occasionally, has a feel for the moment, he's hitting eighth for you, you feel really good about the overall length of your lineup. You want Trey Turner to take over the show and be the leadoff hitter. You want that premium talent that you're paying premium money to step up and do it. It's it just... I guess, hey, give him a run here and see what he can do with it. But the, the early results have been pretty concerning. Well, I mean, if if this again, it goes back to when people complain about Falter. It's like if you're complaining about Falter, you're missing the bigger picture here. Your leadoff hitter, who you pay three hundred million dollars, if he stinks, guess what? Falter can win the Cy Young, and you ain't winning the World Series. You got to look at the big picture things. If Turner isn't Turner, you're in trouble. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Phillies don't get to where they want to go if Trey Turner's going to hit, uh, you know, 245 with a 710 OPS this season. He's, he's got to figure it out. And it's kind of scary. Like you look at this and it's not just a four year deal for $80 million. I mean, this is an 11 year contract and we are in the first 46 games of what is an 11 year deal in which this guy could theoretically play well over a thousand baseball games for you in his career. I mean, he's, he's going to probably play if he reaches the duration of the contract, he'll play 1500 games for the Phillies. So, uh, we got a long way to go here. They got to get this thing figured well, out. I, and to be fair, I mean, the guy is a career 300 hitter. I mean, this is a guy who is seemingly, you know, last year, 298, 338, 322, 335, 298. But you're talking about an elite player in this game. Uh, we're hopefully not hitting the panic button 45 games into his Phillies career. No, I don't, I don't think that you should hit the panic button, but I do think you have a right to be disappointed in what he's brought to the table. Oh yeah, no question. You know, if I'm a fan and I'm going out there expecting to see all-star level play and this is an exciting new tool for this team to get to a championship and, and you see him scuffling to the degree, to the degree that he has scuffled. uh, Yeah. I mean, I would be a little bit impatient with what I'm watching. Uh, we're talking with Bob Michael crossing broad. Uh, of course the Phillies at, uh, 22 and 24, 46 games into the season. They got a two game win streak. They're getting ready for Arizona, who, by the way, uh, Arizona is at the top of the wild card standing. So if you're somebody, you know, I said before the Phillies were one game out of the wild card and the guy's reaction was, it's too early to look at the wild card. I said, then what are you pissed off for? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, it's like if I'm four games out, is it not too early to be four games out? But it's too early to be one game out and give a damn. Uh, you, you wrote about them being resilient. Uh, and 
what is like 22 and 24 resilient great but as you wrote about yeah, I mean, listen, resilience is great. It's been one of the hallmark traits of this team going back to last year. It looked like their season was flying off the train tracks 50 games in. They changed managers. They bounce back. They go on a run. At the end of the season, it looked like they were going to collapse. They didn't. They stabilized. They've, they've shown a lot of punch. They've shown a lot of fight, this team. When when people were ready to write them off and you say, oh, God, this is this is about to go very, very wrong, they, they do a nice job of stabilizing, getting back on track. They've done that a lot this season in the early going. They, they have the disastrous start. They get back to 500. They get a game or two over. Then they go on a prolonged losing streak, and then they stabilize again. It's like a cycle. It just keeps going around and around and around. My thing is like, okay, resilience and stabilizing is, is fantastic. It's great that this hasn't turned into a raging dumpster fire. Tremendous. Now it's time to kind of bear down, though, and, and get beyond that hump. Like th- their high water mark this season is two games over 500. This is a, a high payroll team, defending National League champion, a team with serious expectations. It, it's time to stop hovering a game or two under, a game or two over, and make a move here. And they're about to enter the varsity portion of their schedule. The Diamondbacks are no joke. Now, the Phillies catch a little bit of a break the first two games of the series. They don't see terrific starting pitching before they have to deal with Zach Gallen on Wednesday, who's been awesome. And then you got four with the Braves and three with the Mets. And all these teams are playing pretty well right now. So yeah. the Phillies are going to have to elevate their level of play. Yeah, I mean, we saw a team like Houston. They had injury issues, get out of the gate slow. But now they've won nine out of ten. And it seems like they've kind of found their footing. You're waiting for Philly to kind of get that same type of, okay, we've had some injuries and we've gotten past it. You know, because I do think the whole Hoskins thing has really caused, you know, the more and more you look at it, Bob, you know, the Hoskins thing has really caused a lot because they are so left-handed heavy because of Harper coming back and the fact that Schwarber's left-handed. And even when Hall plays, he they just so took a left-handed heavy team. Stott being a middle infielder who happens to bat left-handed. Marsh being left-handed. Uh, just a very left-handed team. Yeah, uh, coming into yesterday's game, and it didn't get any better. I mean, Justin Steele for the Cubs is a good left-handed pitcher, and he shut down the Phillies. I mean, he just mowed through them for six innings. Phillies entered yesterday's game with the lowest on-base percentage against left-handed pitching in all of baseball. So when you talk about Reese Hoskins, a guy that has some on-base skills, can work walks, and then, oh, by the way, can pop 30 homers for you, his absence from the right side, and that's really the key, from the right side is what is hurting this team right now. And so I would tell you, like, 46 games in, right? Where do the Phillies have to go? How do they add? How do they kind of upgrade this roster? I understand the dire need for starting pitching in this group. I mean, right now you can go through their rotation and three out of five starts beyond Zach Wheeler and Aaron Nola, you have no idea what you're going to get. Are you going to get good Taiwan Walker? Are you going to get disaster Taiwan Walker? Ranger Suarez has been bad through two starts. Now, you know what he is and his track record, so I don't think that you're ready to panic on him, but he hasn't done it yet this year. And then the other starting spot, you don't even know who's throwing the ball for you every fifth day. So I understand the issue there, but offensively, the need to add some legitimate pop from the right side is so substantial to this team's success moving forward. All right, is that C.J. Cron? Is that a guy that makes sense or – you mentioned it because Hall's going to come back. He's left-handed. Are you going to make a trade for a guy who's platooning? Uh, what What is your take of that name? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Like, if you look at, at uh, C.J. Cron uh, specifically, like, the numbers are not particularly impressive. 228 this season, 703 OPS, he's hit six home runs. I don't know that that's a 
a game changer. So I think the Phillies are going to have to approach this from two different levels. If you say, well, what do they need right now? You say they need that, that bat from the right side and they are going to at least, in best case scenario, need one more starting pitcher from outside the organization. So those are two, two pretty substantial trades that you might have to make. They don't want to go into that, that minor league system and, and give up four of their best 15 prospects to bring in multiple win now type players. <clears throat> so I think you have to see how the market evolves. Like, are they going to be in on a guy like Lucas Giolito in the starting pitching market? Because if so, that's going to cost you. So you're not going to have a lot of prospect equity left to jump in and add a bat. Yeah. Do they want to jump into the, the offensive market though and go with a starting type player that can hit in the middle of the order? If so, then you're probably going to be out on a guy like Giolito. So they have to really prioritize over the next six weeks or so what means the most to them. Yeah. I mean, I guess that, and then that becomes another question is you went into the season thinking we got a pretty veteran laden team that went to the World Series. We wouldn't have to make a lot of organizational moves in season to help this team out. If you have to do that, you're setting yourself off a little bit if you have to pair off younger talent to get established players to help this team win. Yeah, and I think that any team that has expectations and that has a lot of veterans always has to walk the fine line of, are we trying to win now? And to what degree are we willing to mortgage our future to do it? But the Phillies, it's such a unique dynamic because they were in the World Series last year. There is a real expectation that they can at least contend to to make noise in the National League and, and potentially get back there. But at the same time, there's been such an emphasis placed on rebuilding the minor league system and this lack of talent that they've had down there for forever, for seemingly forever. So now you're at this crossroads where you know you're going to need reinforcements. There's no question about it. You're going to need significant reinforcements if you want to make that championship push. But how do you do it when you're trying to place an emphasis on rebuilding what you have on the farm? And, you know, hey, Dave Dombrowski's got his work cut out for him here. Yeah, it's not an easy fix if they can't. And, look, that's if they can't get Turner and Schwarber and uh, – I don't know. Uh, who else is scuffling that is not up to expectations? I mean, I think that even to to a lesser degree, like, let's look at a guy like Bryce Harper, who you would think is the, the last person I would mention here. But right now, Bryce Harper is, is probably the Phillies' best hitter. But he's not that force in the middle of the lineup where, you know, he's going off and, and ripping five home runs in a week. Like, that hasn't happened yet. We haven't gotten that level of Bryce Harper. So, does Schwarber get on one of those runs? Does Harper elevate to that peak Bryce Harper that we've seen at times? Does Castellanos maintain what he's doing? Does Trey Turner become the guy we thought he was going to be? All while the guys like Alec Boehm and, and Bryson Stott contribute in waves. If that happens, I don't think that the need to go out and get a bat is as significant. But if we're going to get what we've gotten out of Kyle Schwarber and Trey Turner and not see substantial improvement, yeah. then I think you have to go out and get a real impact back. Yeah, well, and that's the thing, too, is, you know, do you go back to platooning in center field or do you feel like Marsh can handle that? And if you do, do you have a player that can platoon with him? It seems that answer currently is no. Uh the first base situation. The other question is, I think you tweeted this out the other day about – they're last in the league in on-base percentage against left-handed pitching. You're going to add another lefty to your lineup in in Derek Hall, who's going to play every day almost when he comes back. Can you can you can this lineup support another left-handed bat? You have to make that declaration, even if he's healthy enough to play. 
Yeah, so I think that's going to be a really interesting dynamic. When Derek Hall returns, how do you utilize him? And by the way, the Phillies are still prepping Bryce Harper to play first base. Can he do it? Will he be able to do it? Do they even want to run the risk of potentially re-injuring him when you could just keep him comfortably at DH for the remainder of the year? But the whole thing, to me, Harper's the whole key here because if he comes back and plays first base, it gives you a lot more flexibility in how you add your bat. You could do it at you, you could do it in one of the corner outfield spots. You could go out and go pure DH. Like you have a lot more flexibility in how you do it. Yeah. Um there, there's a lot to figure out here between now and the trade deadline oh, for yeah. sure. Forty five games in, nobody hit the panic button yet. They're still uh right there in that wild card race. This is a fun series though. You got Arizona who's at the top, by the way. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. If, and this is why you can't go crazy about where the Phillies are slow start. If you really thought Pittsburgh was going to be in the playoff race, they have really come back to earth. They are 24 and 22 now and really, you know, going in the wrong direction. So stay afloat, try to get healthy and hit that hot spot, you know, at the right time, just like they did last year. You're trying to, you hate to say it, Bob, you're almost trying to, you know, go with the same formula you had a year ago. Where, and I said it's like a slosh. Just get through this regular season and get in healthy and hot. Yeah, I think fans are eventually going to want to expect a little bit more. Like Mike, one thing I would tell you, which is, is I, fair, I, which is fair. I understand the, the formula here. You don't have to win the division. You can get hot at the right time. It's a veteran group that's already done it. So I think that you can look at this team specifically and say. If they get in, I feel pretty good about what they can do. But ultimately, you know, year in, year out, you want to go in thinking we're a 100-win team. We can beat the Atlanta Braves in the NL East. Like, you don't want to be in a spot where on July 4th you look up and you're 13 games behind the Braves and you say, okay, well, we're just going to play for the third wild card spot. We win 86 games. We'll get in and just make our noise then. You know, I think the Phillies have to eventually kind of – I don't want to say internally they don't have these expectations, but I think that they need to get to a place where they come in and they're a legitimate threat to take a division. Well, I think that comes when you can do what Atlanta has done. You have the veterans, but your young players become the guys who are now, you know, when you get your painters and hopefully your Mick Abels and you get that level of guy that is pitching at the back end of your rotation and then they pass the Nolas and the Wheelers and those guys slip down a little bit. That's when, you know, when you got Charlie Morton pitching your fourth or fifth spot because you've got Max Fried passing him, that's when you get to become a 100-win team. Now you've got to be an 87-88 win team because you don't have any young guys taking up those spots in the rotation. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. That's the next step for this Phillies organization is to be able to bring those up reinforcements up internally, have a mix of complementary players, and then have those star players. Like, we look at this team specifically, and I like Alec Boehm. I think he's done a nice job. I believe in him. He's gone through some ups and downs. He's been through some ups and downs here recently. Is he a star? No. No. Bryson Stott, I actually think that you would be hard-pressed to find somebody speak better of Bryson Stott than me. I, I really just – I believe in him as a player. Is he a star? No. So what the Phillies have to do is continue to roll in the booms and Stotts of the world, but they also have to be able to complement them with an occasional superstar piece. Maybe that's Andrew Painter from the pitching side of things. Maybe they have one or two of these guys in the farm right now that ultimately become those headline players, but they're not doing it with any consistency, and that's why it's go out and spend $300 million on the shiny new free agent and hope it works out. And until they become more sustainable at the minor league levels, Dave Dombrowski has to Go spend money, stopgap here, stopgap there, 
and, and that's why they aren't the Braves right now in terms of year in, year out upside. That doesn't mean they can't beat the Braves in the playoffs. I know they did it last year. Yep. Yeah, but, that's the thing. Yep, yeah. And by the way, I will give the fans credit for this, Bob Wankel, because I have been critical of them for this. They are filling the ballpark. Yeah, I mean, listen, sellout crowd again yesterday. Uh, the, the attendance has been outstanding. I think the crowds have been really active, too. Like, they, they've been into it. They've been loud. Um, I was curious to see how the crowd would respond. I really was. Because there were times last year, even when they were making their run, we were yeah. just like, man. There's 24,000 people here. Yeah, we would uh, talk about it all the time. No one believes in them, and they were right there, and they finally got into the playoffs. But the fact that they made it to the World Series and those people are now supporting the next year, I think, is, is something. That hopefully helps this team push through July, August, when the dog days get here, when you have that full house and you're just teetering at 500 and you need that push, that it's not a half-empty building. Yeah, I mean, they've gotten the start that they've wanted from an attendance standpoint. I do wonder if the Phillies don't turn the corner or flip the switch, so to speak. Will they continue to drive 40,000-plus on a nightly basis if they're three games under five hundred in, let's say, mid-July? I don't know. I, I think that the Phillies are in a spot here where it's sort of time to go now. I'm not, I'm not saying that they have to go 7-3 and three in their next 10, but I, I am saying like they've got to elevate to a point where they can show here against these teams – all three of them are winning teams. They yeah. haven't played a ton of baseball against winning competition this year. They need to show that they can mix it up with these guys, and and hopefully they do that. Uh, Bob Wankel, Crossing Broad, he's got observations on the Phillies. Check out the whole article over at CrossingBroad.com. And, of course, he was kind enough to join us right here on this very show on 97.3 ESPN. Bob, we'll talk to you soon, buddy. Talk soon, man. This is Bob Wankel, everybody. We give you a little look at the Phillies. 45 games into the season. Your thoughts on the Phillies, 609-403-0973. Hit me up on the text board and give me your thoughts on what you, where you see this Phillies team. Are you kind of like in panic mode? Like, ah, there's something missing. You look at them from this viewpoint. And I tweeted this out yesterday. And... Phillies win 2-1. I actually tweeted this out before the Phillies won the game. And I said, I imagine Turner and Schwarber have a hot streak in them. And when they get going, along with Nola and Wheeler pitching better, the Phillies will make their move. It's a good team. It's just been clunky start with a lot of injuries. they just got to navigate their way through a long 162. That's kind of how I look at this team right now. That's my thought on the team. What's yours? 609-403-0973. And the... Eagles are Wilt Chamberlain. I'll explain next on the Sports Bash live on 97.3 ESPN. Now, Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN, South Jersey's sports leader. 3.32, the Eagles are Wilt Chamberlain. I don't know if you guys saw this today, but the NFL has put a rule in because of what the Eagles did to the crybaby 49ers. The NFL owners approved the emergency third quarterback proposal today. It allows teams to designate an emergency quarterback on game day because the Niners ran out of quarterbacks in their loss to the Eagles in the NFC Championship game and then bitched and moaned about it all offseason long. I mean, they're still crying about it. It's May. The rule applies to a quarterback who are on the 53-man roster, practice squad players are not eligible. 
to be the emergency quarterback, even if they're elevated for that game. But it allows the team to avoid counting the emergency quarterback as an active player on game day. So you can activate 53 players, and then one of the players would be your emergency quarterback. So, you know, like if the Eagles knock both of your quarterbacks out of the game again, instead of crying about it, you could go to the third guy and watch that guy possibly fail for you. So the Eagles are essentially Wilt Chamberlain. (laughs) All right, I can see that. You're making rules. You're making rules just because another person or team is making life difficult for you. Well, no, they're making rules based on something that you did that the league had to adjust to. He was so good in the paint, they had to make the paint wider. The Eagles are so good at knocking quarterbacks out, they had to give teams another quarterback. Right, you know, they they took dunking away from Will Chamberlain, they took the five second in the lane away from him, they they made everything difficult. Goaltending. It, it is funny, though, that the... It, that it took this for the league to realize this might be a good idea. Well, I mean, it never really came into play until the playoff game. When you got into a playoff game and you finally saw a team have to play with a quarterback who couldn't throw, that is when they finally said, all right, we don't want this to happen again. So I don't have a problem. Like, I don't have a problem with having a emergency quarterback designated beforehand. Like, I don't know why they don't do this in hockey, too, where there's a goaltender who's just there for an emergency. Instead, they go to, like, the Zamboni driver. We right. see that story happen, like, once every so often. Right. I don't I don't understand why we need inactives in the first place. Like, you have a 53-man roster for a reason. Why does anybody need to be inactive? Yeah, I don't know. So on game day, for what he's saying is there's 46 that are activated on game day. There's 53 who are on the active roster, and then they turn out the inactive schedule right. about an hour before games. Why only 46? Why not play all 53? Right. I just – I never understood that reasoning. It, it, I feel like no one actually has given at least me a good answer. Maybe I've asked the wrong people, but I feel like – It's, it's always just, been that way. I don't know the answer either. Why there's only 46 that dress for game day? It feels like a kind of a waste, doesn't it? Like, Yeah, I mean, I think um, to be able to say, look, the guy who is your emergency quarterback doesn't have to count against your team makes sense. I mean, it's fun. I'm, I'm okay with it. I just think it's funny. The Eagles defense basically knocked out Purdy. Right. Then Josh Johnson came into the game. They knocked him out. Right. And then they didn't have another quarterback on the active roster that day. They only had two active, so they had to go back to Purdy, but he couldn't throw because he had torn uh, the UCL on his elbow. Right. And it, we heard half the game that supposedly the emergency quarterback was Christian McCaffrey, and they gave him, what, like one or two plays at quarterback? And that yeah, was I think he threw one pass in the game. Yeah, that, that, was, a, that was a huge letdown. It's like... It's like when a pitcher You comes, wanted to see more of him at quarterback. Well, look, to me, it was like when an outfielder comes in the pitch. You know what I mean? <laughs> or like back in the day, remember? Who pitched was, for the, oh, Cody Clemens threw the other day. Right. It's like, you know, you know, Cody Clemens on the mound, Vince Velasquez left field. You know, when it's a blowout, give me some weird stuff. You know what I mean? Let's get weird with this thing yeah. here. Well, listen, you're it's in like, the playoffs and the 49ers who are complaining and com- crying about this all offseason – they essentially quit. They didn't even try. You know, it's like you didn't even try. Right. You ever watch Three O'Clock High? You ever see that movie? I have not. Oh my gosh. 
I mean, I've seen Three O'Clock High. I mean, it's like four movies I've seen. Three O'clock High is one of them. <laughs> Buddy Ravel. How many people listening are just laughing? Buddy Ravel when it, Cherry Mitchell is the lead character in Three O'Clock High, and Buddy Ravel is a touch freak. And and Jerry Mitchell writes for the student newspaper, and Buddy Ravel's the new student at the school. Okay. But everybody knows he's like a touch freak. You can't touch the guy. So Mitchell's in the bathroom with him, and they're both, like, at the urinal together. And he puts his hand on his shoulder, and he's like, hey, you know, I want to write a story about you being the, the new guy here. And Ravel's a touch freak. Okay. So he touched him, and now he's like, me and you are going to fight. Right. So the whole movie is Mitchell trying to get out of this fight. Trying to avoid getting his rear kicked. Trying to get kicked out of school. He's trying to pay someone. So he pays this guy to go beat Ravel up. And Ravel busts the guy's face in, breaks his finger, (laughs) breaks his nose. And then he looks at Mitchell and he's like, you didn't even try. How does that make you feel? Like basically just dehumanizing the man. You know, like you tried to pay some guy to kick my ass. I broke his finger smashed his face in, broke every bookshelf in the library because I beat his face in so senseless. Everybody, like, so this is the Niners. They were Jerry Mitchell last year. They were just trying to find ways to get out of this fight. They didn't even try. Like, how does that make you feel? So you cried to the league to go get a rule changed. Yeah, you do got to at least try. By the way, I am very disappointed to find out that 3 O'Clock High is not available for free on any streaming platforms. It's, uh, I would say the movie was, I don't know, late 80s, mid to late 80s. 1987. I was going to say, like 86, 87. Jerry Mitchell and uh, Buddy Ravel. Buddy Ravel was in a couple other movies. Yeah, apparently if you have Amazon, Google Play, Vudu, or iTunes, you can purchase the movie for three. Great movie. Definitely worth it. How many people in the listening audience today have seen 3 O'Clock High with Jerry Mitchell and Buddy Ravel. Well, that's not the actor's name. Jerry Mitchell is the character in the movie, and Buddy Ravel is the character in the movie. Uh, I'll get you the exact character. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure. You know, there's a scene <laughs> where Jerry Mitchell, you know, he's trying to get kicked out of school. So he gives the book review, and he's, like, smoking a cigarette, trying to, like, you know, get the teacher to throw him out of the class because he doesn't want to fight this guy. And he's, like, making out with the teacher. And she's, like, into it because he's, like, so good at the book review. <laughs> uh, Jerry Mitchell is played by Casey Simon. I have never seen him in anything else other than Jerry Mitchell. I- I'm looking up to see if I can recognize him. It Buddy in- Ravel I've seen in others. He things. was in one episode of The Blacklist. Wow. Don't recall. Maybe I haven't got there yet. He's also, well, you're the one who, you and, you and your girlfriend quit. I'm on, like, season nine. Oh, you actually are on season nine. Yeah, we picked it back up, but oh, we've okay. been off it for, like, quite some time now. I wasn't sure if you ever did pick it back up. Yeah. Three o'clock high, Mike. Really, you need to expand your movie catalog because that's movies no one's seen or ever talks about. I disagree. Many people. Look, I'll get the text message coming now. Three o'clock high, that's a classic. The bully is the guy from Kindergarten Cop. Yes, that's what he's from. By the way, uh, Jerry Mitchell also is in 14 episodes of NYPD Blue. Yeah. I teach film production at Charter Tech in Summers Point. We just watched 3 O'Clock High this past month. Great movie. See, anytime you 3 O'Clock High is a class. It's an 80s classic. Just to denigrate 3 O'Clock High makes you simple-minded. Um, and I, I question your 
I question your place in society if not that you haven't seen three o'clock high, but if you're this guy texting in and said, really, that's your catalog. I admit it that I don't have a big catalog. It's not like I said, hey, I have this verse catalog and three o'clock high is at the top of it. I don't watch movies. Yeah, I, I just I what, just three o'clock high is it. one that essentially everybody has seen. It's an 80s classic. I'm trying to find out what else. Um... And by the way, the film production teacher at Charter Tech agrees. <laughs> right. He showed it in his film class. <laughs> and this guy's trying to tell me that 3 o'clock high, not a classic? No, it is a classic. Do yourself a favor out there. If you haven't seen 3 o'clock high, go watch it. Oh, the cost of three nine nine. Like I that. do want to ask this question. Back in the football season. Yeah. Remember there was a day... I was talking about putting your butter on the counter. Yes, I remember this. So here we are all these months later. How many people did the butter on? I said, like, I want a homework assignment to put your butter on the counter. I asked this question because the other day I made raisin toast. What was the face for? I was just interested. Why was it raisin toast? Because there's raisin in the toast. I'm just, did you, did you purposely get raisin toast? Yeah, you buy we... it like that. I know you buy it like that. I'm asking, like, are you a raisin toast guy? Yeah. Like, are you a guy that goes to Obviously, the store I say, had it, and I was making it. Well, maybe you, know, you didn't have to buy it. Maybe your girlfriend bought it, and you were like, ah, oh, I want to try this out. No, uh, we bought Raisin Toast. Right. I put the Raisin Toast in, but the butter was gone. So when I went to the fridge to go get a new stick of butter, it was hard as a rock. And I was saying, man, who didn't put the butter back on the counter? <laughs> so how many people out there tried the butter on the counter and still are doing it? Based on listening to this little show that we have hanging out together. Huh? And have now watched 3 o'clock high. So, so far, about 15 people have seen 3 o'clock high and say it's a classic. And one idiot says, I need to expand my collection. And uh, it's not. It's a movie that no one's seen or ever talks about. Already proven to be incorrect, which is... Like many of that guy's text messages. Incorrect. Hey, I got an interesting email that I want to read off because it makes some really good points. Sports Bash Live 97.3 ESPN regarding the Sixers and what their problem might stem from that I agree with. Coming up next on the Sports Bash Live on 97.3 ESPN. Now, Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN. 349 Sports Bash. So I got this email from Jim. Good email, Jim. I appreciate it. And it had some very thought-provoking things in here. He said, Mike, I don't know if you ever saw the J.J. Reddick podcast with Jimmy Butler. I did see that Jimmy Butler podcast. It was a while. They were like drinking wine together, I think, if memory serves me correct. He said he described the problems with the Sixers, which were lack of direction and organization. Butler came across as a reasonable person. I want to start with that. I think, you know, when I talk about coaching and stuff like that, that is all encompassing with the organization. And a good coach, to me, a good impactful coach is someone who has very good preparation and organizational skills. He sets the culture. You know, Eric Spolster himself said, it's not the in-game stuff that separates us. It is what we do in the off days. We held everybody accountable on the days that we're not playing. So on days we're not playing, we're held accountable for maybe not focusing at practice, maybe not studying the tape or the film or whatever you want to call it at this stage of the game. 
And maybe Jimmy Butler back then is saying, look, we weren't – remember this whole story about, you know, they were watching film and he's like, what are we doing here? You know, we're not – no one's doing anything. We're just sitting here watching film, but no one's doing anything. That's where I think the coach can be held accountable. So to go to that email, I think that's right. He says in another podcast, Tim Legler spoke about Eric Spolster's basketball philosophy. Spolster said every player has a weakness, and he viewed it as his job as the coach to put the player in position, which exposed the weaknesses. This is where, you know, we talk about the coach. You find those weaknesses in your days off. That is where the coach has an impact. You find the weakness of a player on off days. When you're talking about a weakness of a player, he's talking about the opponent's weakness. Hey, I see this guy does not dribble well with his left hand. I see it in the film. I see it in the film. I see it. Our scouts have seen it. The organization having scouts and a good scouting team and getting that information to the coach and saying, look, hey, here's Gabe Vincent. He doesn't go left very well, so we have to make him go left. And then the coach, when they have practice on the days when they're not playing a game in a playoff series, will say, hey, our advanced scouts are telling me that Gabe Vincent doesn't go well to his left, so we have to force him to his right. These are the things where the coach and the organization's direction and and organization has an impact on game night. And this is where I think I am a little surprised with this whole Missoula thing because he has Brad Stevens in the building. He has Brad Stevens in the building. He should have scouts and Brad Stevens and people in that organization saying, all right, why are we not advancing? Let's take a look at this Miami team. What do they do? What's their weaknesses? And they're not finding them in their off days. The Boston Celtics coaching is letting them down on game day because it's letting them down on the days they're not playing. And that's an organizational problem. And that goes back to Brad Stevens. It goes to Ime Odoka, And now it's causing Joe Mazzola to be under fire. This isn't a Joe Mazzola problem. This is a Celtic problem. Yeah, it is, because you're not putting your players in a position to be successful. And you mentioned about Brad Stevens in the building. And listen, you know, maybe Brad Stevens just doesn't care. I don't know. For whatever reason. Well, maybe he doesn't want to make the guy uncomfortable and doesn't want to get involved. But you're the president of the organization. And you picked this guy to be the head coach. Uh, I mean, I get that. And listen, I like Missoula as, you know, he's a West Virginia guy. They didn't have a lot of options here. The no, Doka thing. But you Kendrick know. Perkins brought the point up this morning that you didn't have to give him the head coaching. Well, game. you could have make, left him in the intro. Here's the thing: they had the best offense in NBA history through half the season. You said, "Hey, we got a 34 year old guy. We won 57 games this year. We got a good young coach all of a sudden." Oh, it's kind of like when the Mariners won what was 118 games, couldn't get to the World Series. I don't know where that parallel reaches except for the fact that you have a 34-year-old coach who looked like they were exceeding their expectations because of what happened and you're saying, "Hey, we got to we've changed coaches 3 times now. So we what, can't keep changing coaches." So what changed from February to now? Well, what, I think did, you're did, going did, against a coach in Eric Spolstra who pays attention to details on their off days better than anybody else. Okay, so then are is if it's, is it just as simple as they're being out coached? Um, I just don't think they're prepared very well here. And so by the way, I think I think that they have the better team. Of course they do. But the Miami players, 
you know, you could say they're being outcoached. Miami's playing better. We just went over all the shooting. Miami's hitting shots. Boston is not. But it's, again, it goes back to Miami's better prepared, right? They're better prepared, yes. This isn't, hey, Spolstra is doing things on game night that Miami or that Boston isn't. No, Miami's doing things on days off that Boston is not ready for. They have no counter for. To me, part of coaching is the preparation. It's, so, it's, it's the number one thing. So, I mean, to me, I surmise it as Spolstra is winning, Missoula is losing, and Brad Stevens doing nothing to help him. Uh, here's one thing, and this, this is part of the email I like a lot. He said, Mike, you said many times the regular season is relatively meaningless. One of the maddening things about Doc is during the regular season, young players sat on the bench and didn't develop. Bingo. That's a Brad, um, that is a big Doc Rivers problem that I had. Was that in game 47 in Memphis, why not play Paul Reed for 25 minutes? Go out there and let him play. Instead, you played Montez Harrell. For twenty for fifteen minutes, I don't need Montrezl Harrell. Doc Rivers doesn't uh, look at the Heat. They play these young guys all season long. They're getting minutes throughout the season, and now come playoff time, who's contributing for them? Guys you never heard of before. Football at fours on the other side. Sports Pass Live, 97.3 ESPN. It's a Mosher Monday. Jeff Mosher is in the house. We talk a little Eagles and NFC East. Stick around. 97.3 ESPN presents the Sports Bash with Mike Gill. It's time for Football at Four with Jeff Mosier. I think our track record in the last 20 years, how many NFC's titles, playoff appearances, and appearances in the NFC Championship game, those are some of the metrics I look at, and um, I'll compare our record with uh, almost anybody. Powered by the Inside the Birds podcast. Now, live from inside the Matt Black Kia Studios. This is Football at Four. Football at Four is powered by the Inside the Birds podcast where they're breaking down the opponents. We've got some questions on the text board for Football at Four. We'll throw Jeff Mosher's way here on the Sports Bash edition of Football at Four on a Monday. Uh, the Eagles getting ready for, uh, they'll have their mini camps uh, in about eight days from now. Uh, a lot of teams are doing it right now. The Eagles will open up next week with their mini camps. And that was something, I think, Jeff, uh, that the Nick Sirianni made a deal with the players, kind of, that uh, they would cut down on their mini camps. Is that right, last year? It's sort of a continuation of something that happened his first year as head coach when there was that sort of renegotiation between the league, the NFLPA, and the players. That was a, a more harmonious um, contract, right, uh, between the, t- the two organizations. There wasn't a huge lockout or anything. But part of that was, impacted the OTA schedule. And if you remember, Nick Sirianni um, and the players agreed that the players agreed that they would show up to a certain number of OTAs if. Because remember, they're not contractually bound to to go to any other than the mandatory ones, which are only, I think, three days' worth. So there was an agreement between Nick Sirianni and the players on a sort of revised schedule that the players accepted and the coaches would be happy with. And since then, they've sort of worked on a different schedule each year than the way the league puts it out or allows for. And it's not all just an agreement because they want to keep good relations with each other. A lot of it is also due to the um, new program, the strength and conditioning program that they have. And 
the guys that they brought over from the Rams and other organizations to really improve their conditioning. And they feel like this is the best way. You know, this this also goes into the talk about uh, lesser hours of practice during training camp and OTAs, and it all folds in. Um, and so far, it's hard to argue with the results because they've stayed generally healthy for the last two years, especially when you compare that to the five or six years before. Uh, a Shaner from EHC texts in a question that I think is a, it goes right into your guys' podcast. Greg Cassell is breaking down the schedule with you guys on the latest edition of the Inside the Birds podcast. So, Shaner, I uh, uh, ask you to go listen to their breakdown here. But he wants to he asked this question. I thought it ties in. He said, with the hard schedule and coming off an uncommonly healthy year, would you be surprised if this team was a 10-7 and or 9-8 and team and didn't win the division and they kind of eked in as a wild card, or are you not really concerned about them taking that big of a step back? I mean, I, I'm not that concerned because I still think they have one of their best, if not the best offense in the NFL or right up there with Kansas City. I mean, they, they have so much experience returning on that side of the ball from last year's offense, and then you added – DeAndre Swift and Rashad Penny and Zacchaeus, you know, it's not like you lost a whole lot other than Miles Sanders. So I would think you would look at the additions and subtractions from the offseason on offense and say net positive, like they have a chance to be even better offensively, clearly defensively. I mean, they're they're just completely rebuilt up the middle from linebacker safety and, and one defensive tackle. But I don't, you know, you know how it is in the NFL. If you can jump on teams early, um, then you sort of take your defensive weaknesses out of it because you make other teams one-dimensional, and the Eagles still have a really good pass rush. At least on paper, they should be very good, even without Javon Hargrave. By the way, what is it, six or seven first-round picks in the front and the defensive line by itself, which is pretty amazing. I don't know if any other team has that. So, um, I, st- I, st- so I don't think it's going to be like doom and gloom to the point where they should be a team that's worried about sneaking in and getting the sixth and seventh seed, I think they'll be considered the best team in the division. Uh, theirs to lose, although nobody has won this division two years in a row for 17 years, so they'll have to avoid that. But they are certainly poised to be able to do that. And if they do that, Mike, right, they're at least a top four seed. So I, I can't imagine, listen, the injuries, misfortune, they are playing a tougher schedule, so that all folds in, but I still think this Eagles team on paper looks very good. Yeah, uh, one of the things I want to get your you know take on this is the depth. If last year, as that text message kind of said, they didn't have a lot of injuries, so the depth really wasn't challenged all that much. But do you look at last year's team as having more depth, or do you think this team has more depth? No, I think last year's team had more depth. I mean, um, especially at certain positions like offensive line. You know, you were able to bring Andre Dillard, a former first-round pick, off the bench. You were able to, you know, obviously with Isaac Sayamalu leaving, then, you know, you either have a rookie or, or a veteran like Jack Driscoll, who was good depth starting now, or maybe even, you know, someone else if it's Cam Jurgens. Um, so I don't think there's deep on the offensive line, which is a big part of their success the last few years. Uh, defensive line depth is certainly a question, especially on the interior you know, with Jordan Davis now going to be a starter and no Linval Joseph, no Ndamukong Sue, and you're really not sure what you've got after, you know, with Contavis Street, who's a newcomer, and Milton Williams is a nice player, but he's always been a bench guy, and, and Marlon Tuipolotu is fighting for his, his job with guys like Moro and Jomo. So there, there's question marks there. And, of, of course, at linebacker, 
you know, last year they didn't need to because they stayed so healthy, but you had N'Kobe Dean if you needed to put him in a game. Now, you don't even know who's starting next to N'Kobe Dean and whether that player is going to be able to survive, you know, like having a starting job for, for 17 games. Um, same thing at safety. You've got some bodies there, but you don't really know how it's all going to shake out and what level of play you're going to get after, you know, really at any of the spots. I mean, Thurlman's has been pretty consistently him for five years, so I guess that's one guy you know what you're getting. But after that, you really have no idea. Corner, you can make an argument they're a little deeper because they do have a greedy – they have a veteran who's a backup outside corner, which they didn't have last year. So that's one spot where you might say, all right, with Ringo and with uh, Josh Job coming back, who played a little bit last year, and with Greedy Williams, at least you have his experience there on the outside. But most of those other positions I talked about, not as deep. Yeah, uh, and they, by the way, signed Nolan Smith today. You mentioned Ringo. He's the last guy, right? So uh, it would be great to get him yep. out there uh, competing for that spot because corner is a spot where they're going to need someone to step up. Theoretically, yes, because what are the odds that Bradbury and Slay play 17 games again, don't miss any time? You know, we know that Avante Maddox has been injured a lot, so if he gets hurt, you're going to need to find a slot corner who plays better than Josiah Scott did in his place last year. Jeff Mosher, Football 4 from InsideTheBirds.com and the Inside the Birds podcast. You know, uh, the Eagles uh, knocked out the quarterback Purdy last year, then knocked out Josh Johnson. Well, today, the NFL's approved an emergency third quarter. I said the Eagles are like Wilt Chamberlain. They got a rule put in, but, you know, uh, this is a rule that should, you know, seemingly make sense to begin with here um, to to get that third quarterback to put on, uh, you know, they'll be active on game day, but it won't be a part of the 46-man active list correct is that how that works yeah which is sort of like you know this is what it used to be when i first got into you know the job in 2005 that you had that you had a inactive number three quarterback who could be used if you lost your first two quarterbacks and then what the nfl did is say let's kind of scrap with that and we'll just give you that extra spot okay and what teams wind up doing including the 49ers is using that extra spot on a different position and now, and then they wound up crying about it when they lost two quarterbacks. So I feel like the league is sort of placating the criers who, you know, I'm not just, it's not just the 49ers. I think other teams have, have said it too, but it's like the NFL gave you that extra spot. You didn't have to not use it on a quarterback. You could have used it on a quarterback. It was your decision to go deeper at some other spot. Why are you now going back in time and reversing it because teams decided, not to use that spot for a quarterback. I don't know. It just, to me, it's it's like fussing over nothing, but whatever. <laughs> well, we were talking about this earlier. Do you know where they have 53 men, but only 46 are active on game day? Where that number came from? Don't. No clue. Um, yeah, I'm just not that old. <laughs> Nor have I gone back in the history books to, to look about why that number is the way it is. Right. So... Um, we were we were kind of like why where where did randomly forty six come up as hey that's how many people dress on game day it's forty six and that's what it is who knows but now one of those guys will be the emergency quarterback so you really have forty seven uh, forty six dressed one emergency quarterback and, and that will be that Jeff obviously um, because t- by the way of, of course Mike if the if the forty ers or any other team had been able to go to that third quarterback in a playoff game against the Eagles or another number one seed, for sure that third quarterback would have made a huge difference, right? I mean, you're talking like a Nate Sudfeld type of guy would have come in and just rescued the day. 
<laughs> well, yeah, what listen. It's all about. <laughs> you, you, uh, yeah, you, you, I said it's funny. Um, like they, they knocked out Purdy. They knocked out Josh Johnson and like who would have been the third guy, right? I, who, who even knows? Like that guy was just going to go into Philadelphia and win a playoff game. Yeah, exactly. I mean, come on. <laughs> Sports Bash, uh, Jeff Bosher here, football at four. Obviously, you know, the Eagles don't get going until next week here, but I want to get your take on this division and where it sits as everybody else is kind of out there right now. Uh, let's start with Washington. Is Washington, mm-hmm. have they made enough strides this offseason to make, you know, to, to make you think that they have changed at all? No. And I know everybody's going to say, obviously, no, because Sam Howell. I mean, who's Sam Howell? I actually think. Sam Howell is going to be better than some people. I'm not sitting, sitting here putting any all-pro or pro bowl on him. I just think that right now people look at Sam Howell and think this is a joke. But he should have gone higher in the draft based on a lot of people I spoke to going into the draft last year. And he's a kid who's got some talent. So it's not that I, I think that they're not going to meet or reach good expectations because of him, although he's clearly the number four quarterback in the division right now. But it's that year in and year out, that team loses games because they don't have an offensive line. For all that they put into their defense, and they have a very good defensive line, and they really added to their secondary, drafted a safety in the second round. Cam Curl's a good player, got good corners, decent linebackers. We know they have great pass pass rushers, right? But they, 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 they go out and make a, a move to get the, the right tackle from the Chiefs, Wiley, right? Who's, I mean, listen, but going into the Super Bowl, everybody thought that that was the, their weak spot for the Chiefs. It just so happened that, he didn't get beat. Guys were slipping all over the field. But the Washington commanders just don't upgrade their offensive line. And when they play teams in their division, like the Eagles and Dallas, they are constantly outclassed in the trenches. And, that, and they literally have to, to get lucky or run the ball and make, make some amazing plays like they did in the first game against the Eagles where they had a couple of interceptions, three or four, to win games. And it's just too much pressure on their run game and defense, they and and even their quarterback to to play try to win games with that offensive line. Yeah, uh, that's a good breakdown. It is you know this is a team, the Commanders, uh, that you know they have a new owner now. We'll see how that changes things for them. How far have the Giants come, in your opinion? To where you know where are they right now? They went to the playoffs last year. Now you know they're back uh, as they get ready for their mini camp here. Where is that team in your mind in the pan? Is that a team that made the playoffs because of the circumstances and take a step back, or do we think that team is taking a, another? step forward well that's a good question i think they at least have a blueprint that's successful you know uh you know you can question how good daniel jones is going to be or whether it was worth the money but it's hard to find any quarterback so the thing is you got to surround him with talent right offensive linemen like we just talked about washington which they had uh you got to surround him with weapons they have uh, he's got some pretty good receivers uh, now. I mean, they have Wandale Robinson from last year. He's hurt all year, but he's a pretty good pretty good receiver. They drafted Jalen Hyatt. They traded for Darren Waller. They'll have Sterling Shepard coming back. You know, hopefully their right tackle for them uh, plays better in year two, just like their left tackle got better year after year after a rough first year. They drafted the Minnesota center, Schmidt. So they're doing – they drafted a very good cover corner in Deontay Banks from Maryland who's going to fit – a Wink Martindale press man defense very well. So their blueprint, Mike, that they're following to me is one that ordinarily leads to success. They're bolstering their trenches, which they did last year and this year, and also getting playmakers for their quarterback and making the type of moves that make sense with their scheme and their coaching staff. At the end of the day, you and I know 
Can they get enough, though, out of the quarterback? It's, to me, they'll be in games. Can they get enough out of their quarterback in the fourth quarter to win more than they lose and compete against New York and Dallas? That, to me, is the big question. Uh, and then there's Dallas. You know, there's a team that has constantly been in the mix, in the mix, but disappointing come playoff time. But like that question asked before, did they have enough with the Eagles schedule? You know, last year they had the, the, the first place schedule. And last year, people said the Eagles didn't play anybody. Well, does Dallas have enough to scoop up enough regular season wins that they can, you know, with what they've done this offseason and where they are today? I, I like Dallas's offseason. I know nobody wants to hear that, and they think that, you know, everything the Cowboys do is a joke. And, you know, certainly the Cowboys' playoff record over the last 20 years speaks for itself. But what were their deficiencies? Why did Dax Prescott go from one of the least intercepted quarterbacks to the leader? in interceptions last year. Well, he forced a lot of throws to receivers who were just not explosive. Michael Gallup was coming off the ACL. He wasn't himself, so they went out and traded for Brandon Cooks, who, say what you want, gets 1,000 yards every single year. Was it like eight years in a row he's been 1,000 yards? I mean, he's a good, deep threat wide receiver that can be a nice weapon that they have along with, you know, the, their, their other wide receivers. And um, defensively, they went out, and they've always struggled at that corner spot opposite digs. And they got Stephon Gilmore, who's not the Stephon Gilmore for 10 years ago, but he's better than the guys there, you know, the Anthony Browns or Jordan Lewis's or who, you know, Kelvin Joseph's that they were trying to fill that hole with. They are very deep at safety. They have good safeties. They have good linebackers. Mozzie Smith is going to sit next to uh, their other d- defensive interior linemen and, and probably play pretty well. And of course, they're going to turn Micah Parsons into an edge rusher full time now. I, I look, I think that they are right there. As long as if Dak can fix his issues from last year, and if Mike McCarthy's play calling winds up being better because it's a more traditional West Coast offense than, you know, what they were getting out of, out of Kellen, um, uh, Kellen Moore, right? Yep. Yeah, then maybe they will be the team that they're, they've been supposed to be. They've obviously got to prove that. I'm just giving you what I see out of their 53, and I'm telling you, I think it's pretty competitive. Now, if, if they're held back by coaching or erratic quarterback play of course i don't think any of us will be surprised but the talent is there jeff Mosher, football at four check out the podcast it's out with a look at the eagles opponents and uh, obviously greg cosell breaks him down better than anybody else and of course jeff right here on football at four as we get ready for eagles minicamp last next week and boy the summer's cruising by it's not even started yet but football feels like it's moving 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 as always here on football at four Jeff Mosher in the house on a Mosher Monday. Mosh, appreciate it, bud. All right, my friend. Talk to you Wednesday. I like his thoughts. You know, you look at the Giants. This is a team that over the last couple of years, I think we just kind of laughed and mocked. And I said when they hired the coach and the GM, I felt like they were moving in the right direction. I think that's a nine-win team that's maybe arrow pointing up instead of taking the step back. We'll see. Not sure what to think about Washington yet. I feel like I'm always a little higher on Washington than most people, but I don't know. The quarterback spot in Washington, mess. I like Jeff's breakdown. Their trenches just not good enough. They had that good defense a couple of years ago. I think I got sucked in because I like defense. Teams that play good defense, they had a really good defense like two or three years ago. And that defense has just gone away. I don't know what happened to him. Hey, I do want to know what happened with my air conditioner. I had a little bit of a problem. I called my guys at Ambient, and they came to my house. They called me 15 minutes ahead of time. They said we're on our way. They sent me a text message with a picture of the guy who was showing up. He arrived on time at my house. 
found the issue, replaced the part, was right in the truck, no waiting. Now my air conditioner is ready to go for the summer season, and I'm glad that I did not wait for a 90-degree day to find out that I had the problem. When comfort matters, choose Ambient Comfort. They're my guys. Schedule a $59 AC tune-up now. Get it done before the summer season gets here. 60 bucks, $59. The guy comes out. He takes care of all the things. And you won't have to worry about what the summer heat will feel like inside your house. Call them now, 609-568-0955. Tell them Mike Gill sent you. Go to ambientcomfortnj.com. You know, you're driving around, you're thinking to yourself, man, how many more seasons am I really getting out of my air conditioner? Well, just have them come out and tune it up, take a look at it. It might have nothing, but no problems. That's what we did. We got the tune-up. And a little bit of an issue. He said, well, because we just got our one air conditioner replaced not too long ago. I have one of those houses that has an upstairs and a downstairs. We had to replace the upstairs. So we know that downstairs one is on borrowed time. 420. <laughs> Sports Fast Live, 97.3 ESPN. The 97.3 ESPN free mobile app coming up. It's the sound of the day. And when you hear the sound of the day, you're going to hear... Hendrick Perkins, excuse me, Alan Hahn, uh, on why coaching, something that I generally don't agree with, is the biggest reason why the Celtics are down in this series. See if I agree with him. Coming up next on the Sports Bash Live 97.3. Now, Bash on 97.3 ESPN. 427 on Sports Bash Monday. We've got the sound of the day. I'm not a big blame the coach guy in any sport, really. I mean, I definitely think they have some impact. I think you're seeing the impact in this series. And it's not in-game. It's the off days. Spolster has his team so much more well-prepared. They have the mindset that they're better. They have a mindset that we're better than Boston. Boston doesn't have that mindset because they're not prepared. They don't think they're prepared enough. And it's not, hey, we didn't call a great play with three minutes left in the game. We didn't do this. No, you weren't prepared on the off days. And there you're seeing a big problem for the Boston Celtics right now. Well, it's something that Alan Hahn talked about this morning on Get Up about the Celtics head coach problem. This was him this morning on ESPN television. The Boston Celtics as a team, they're not soft. They don't have soft players. But when you play soft, it's because you're not confident. You're not sure. You're hesitant. And I think that's about preparation. It it does begin there. And so as we've watched this series unfold, as we have watched the playoffs unfold for the Celtics, who did get this far, but they did so, and as we've talked about along the way, everybody, playing with their food. They always, they messed around with the Hawks. They messed around with the Sixers. Uh-huh. And now they're getting, they're getting beat up against the Heat like we said would happen because the Heat are a different animal. But why are they at this place? They're at this place because Ime Odoka got them to the finals last year. And Ime Odoka's absence is why they won't get to the finals this year. Uh, he talked about the preparation. You know, it's something I harp a lot about on this show. Like, yeah, there is a very few, few, like Eric Spolstra, his teams are more prepared. They don't always have the most talent. They might have the best player, though, in this series, Jimmy Butler. And if you have the best player, you're generally going to win. Like, for instance, Brett Brown. Many people thought he was a horrible coach, right? Yeah, people hated him. People hated Brett. You don't just win 52 games 
and win around in the playoffs. Like that's a pretty, you know what you're doing, but there are just so, this is where I think people and I have a little bit of a disconnect. There are so few NBA coaches who make an impact. Most of the guys, like I'm having a conversation with my buddy. All right. And he's a big, it's the coach's fault. The coach is a big deal. The coach makes an impact. I said, all right, well, the Sixers want to hire Nick Nurse, Frank Vogel, Mike Budenholzer. He says, I don't want any of those guys. I said, well, they won championships. Yeah, but I don't want them. I said, but you just got done telling me that the coach makes an impact. Well, who Why do would you, you want? not want a coach who has won a championship? So who he said, you? well, I'm allowed to think they make an impact, but not want a guy who's won a championship. I said, do you see how ridiculous this sounds? I mean, that just sounds like. You know, it almost sounds like a, a, a guy who's having a political argument and doesn't like the point that somebody made, and then they just start spinning it around. That's what it sounds like. Right. I mean, I said, okay, the coach makes that big of an impact. Do you want to hire Frank Vogel? No. It's Do you like, want to hire Mike Budenholzer? No. Do you want to hire Nick Nurse? No. He sounds like he is delusional a little bit when it comes to coaching. I think he just, I want to disagree with you. <laughs> That's what it comes oh, down so you to. Have that kind he of just doesn't want to agree with me. He doesn't want to admit well, that Well, listen, right. for years when you're trying to tell somebody <laughs> the impact of a coach isn't all that much. Right. In the same sentence, you're telling me there's an imp- the coaches have a big impact. But then I said, well, the Sixers want to hire a guy who's won a championship. And then you don't want a guy who's won a championship. <laughs> there are so, so few guys who do make a small impact on game night. Correct. You're not hiring that guy. There's so few of them. Like, we sit here and talk about, well, Tyron Lue, he stinks. Well, David Blatt, he stunk, and he got to a finals. Budenholzer, he stinks. Well, he's won a championship. Nick Nurse, well, he's no good. He won a championship. So if you're telling me these guys don't make an impact, how did they win titles? Well, they win titles because they have good players. But the problem is, is that having good players is a huge part of the equation but as you've said before, Mike, the coach still has to put the guys in a position to be successful. And it's looking like you and Alan Hahn both agree that Missoula and the, and the Celtics organization is not putting their players in a position to win in this series. And that's a, that's a problem because you, how do you go from beating the Sixers and having this incredible output of offense from the fourth quarter of game six in the game seven, and then just start falling apart completely offensively to the point where you have people on national shows talking about, oh, gotta trade Jalen Brown. He's out of Boston. Like that's, that's where we went from. We went from you beat the Sixers, you're going to the NBA finals, you're the favorites to win it all to gotta trade Jalen Brown. He's the problem. Well, I mean, I think what they're looking at from Boston's perspective, you know, we talk about it with the Sixers all the time. You keep doing the same thing. That's the definition of insanity. Boston has the same two guys. They keep losing. So they're finally looking at it and saying, look, we had Brad Stevens. They lost. They got Amy Aduko. They lost. Right. Now they got Joe Mazzulla and that duo lost again or they're going to lose. Right. So at what point do you say, let's keep trying with this duo or do you say, and listen, their coaching situation has been kind of out of their control. Stevens resigned and became the president of the team. 
which tells me what? He valued being the decision maker for the roster as more important than the coach of the team, did he not? Well, I think maybe he also decided that, you know, he got all he could. He, I think he had an honest moment. He said, look, I got the most I could out of these guys. Somebody else coming into it. Well, then they get Odoku who takes him to the finals and then he gets in trouble and he has to step down or he got fired or he got suspended. I don't, you know, whatever happened there. And then they brought, uh, Missoula was on the staff. Right. So this has been a weird situation for them. But like Keith Smith has said, They've had the same issues with the same guys for three straight years with three different coaches. At what point do you finally say, maybe it's not the player's fault. I mean, the coach's fault. It's the players who were in there. And I think, you know, you take a look at this Boston team right now. They're, they're not prepared. And it's a weird thing for me to say that they're not prepared and they have Brad Stevens in the building. For him not to come into the film session and say, Joe, let me come and sit in the film system uh, session with you guys. Maybe maybe you're missing something. Listen, maybe we're overrating Brad Stevens. You know, the, the joke. <laughs> well, no. listen, right? Like maybe, you know, people called him Boy Wonder. And you've talked to that before, Mike, about how, you know, people acted like this guy was the second coming. And he never got to an NBA Finals. Maybe the problem with Brad Stevens is he had a, he had a come to Jesus moment. He said, you know what? Maybe I'm not as good of a coach as I thought I was. Maybe. 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 I don't know. I mean, I've always said I thought Brad Stevens was a good coach. People were making him out to be boy wonder. And I think he had his flaws as well. And I think uh, this Boston team maybe has gotten as far as they can with this. With And it's a young dude. That's the problem. They're still young. Right. But they've already – how many years have these guys – that's the thing. These guys get in the league at such a young age. At 26 years old, you've been in the league for 10 years. Yeah, I mean, Brown was drafted in the same draft as Ben Simmons, right? So he's him and Tatum have been together now for basically five, six years. So you you could argue that, you know, there's – I don't know about their personal relationship. Somebody was talking about this morning. I forget what show it was about how, like, you know, these guys don't hang out together. They don't have some great relationship. And – it is a little weird. There, There is a party that looks at them and says, look, these guys have been together for, what is it now, six years according to Basketball Reference. So, I mean, I don't know if six years is the cap or not on a, on a playing relationship. But, you know, if you don't believe that this team as currently constructed can overcome what they're doing, you got to move on from somebody. It's probably going to be Brown, right? Well, I can't pay Brown the max, the super max money. If if I'm coming to terms with this team is what it is. Look, it's a very good team. How many teams, you know, get knocked out in the conference finals? They get they're in the finals last year. They get back to the conference finals, and we're looking at them as a failure. I mean, well, that's part of the problem with all these conversations. Pe- people have become so all or nothing in terms of their their fandom with their team. I also think there is a component of the whole thing, like I said, with the Sixers. You get to game seven, and you have a goal that you set out for, and you can't – and you're realizing in the middle of the game, you're not reaching that goal. Right. And the emotion of it just comes pouring out of you, and you end up getting blown out. That's the result, right? That's what we're seeing with Boston. Another year of the goal being to win a championship and realizing in the moment we're not good enough. And the result is what happened last night. You got your ass kicked because the the emotional 
toll it takes on you to go through 82 games and go through the first round of the playoffs and go through the second round of the playoffs, and then you get to this moment, and then again you realize you're not good enough, I think it takes an emotional toll on these teams, and you see in the moment. That's why you get blowouts sometimes between the best teams because the one team thinks they're right on the same level as you, and when they realize we're, it's not happening for us, they shut down, and then the blowout happens. Well, what's crazy is is that they were saying last night during the game that there's never been a sweep in the conference finals in NBA history. So like, think about that for a minute. Like, since 19, what is it, 70 or 71, i, I got to double-check the actual date, but they said there's never been a sweep in the conference finals. So, like, what does that say about this team <laughs> that – you're going to be the first team that could potentially be swept out of the conference finals. Like, that's that's how twisted in the head you just got by these guys. Yeah, I mean. That's concerning. Yeah. Well, I think if you look at where the Celtics are, they have a lot of decisions because you have a, an aging Al Horford. You've got the two guys who have continuously come up. I don't want to say short or small, but they have. I mean, they haven't been able to win that championship together. Can they play off of each other together? They both kind of do similar things. So when one guy is going, sometimes the other guy is not. Right. You know? I don't know. Speaking of the other side of the coin, the Miami Heat are up 3 nothing. Kendrick Perkins spoke about this morning. Why are the Miami Heat up 3 nothing? When I look at this team and I'm listening to Jimmy Butler, he did an interview after game one and I felt it in my soul. He was talking about the love that they have in the locker room, the belief that they have in the locker room, the belief that Eric Spolcher and Pat Riley put into every single player on that roster and it gave me chills. And I actually tweeted, I said this was the best post-game interview this season on how he spoke on this team and how they care for one another. Because when you care for one another outside of basketball, then it's going to roll over in between the lines. Yeah, it is going to roll over in between the lines. I think you're seeing it here. Is Miami's players believe they can win? Boston's aren't sure. Correct. Absolutely. It's it's a somebody made a tweet online, and I I kind of quote tweeted it last night. I said, look. Self-confidence is a powerful thing. You know, a lot of athletes talk about like visualizing things before they happen. And I've, I've, I've listened to enough athletes talk about this phenomenon where it's that these athletes say, we believe we can do it before it happened. You know, and in many ways, this heat team reminds me of that Mavs team a decade ago with Dal, uh, Dirk Nowitzki that had all those randos around him. And they won a championship, but it was because of self-belief. They believed in their system. They believed in their offense. They believed in what they were doing. And you have to think that these guys believe in each other and the system so much that they just don't – it's almost like they don't see how they can lose. I also think there's – you know, I was um, – the Miami Heat this year, okay, they weren't very good. Mm-hmm. A lot of problems. A lot of if injuries. You talk to pe- they had a lot of injuries. But if you talk to people who cover the Heat, they would tell you it was not a good locker room down there. Like, playing with Jimmy Butler is grinding. Right? Well, it is. But, I mean, it's, it, there's also the point where playing for Spolstra is grinding, too. I mean, that whole Heat culture where, you know, just, just to use a, a specific example, you know, there's all kinds of stories about how, Pat Riley in the in the Heat, 
you know, they demand you have like a certain body fat percentage and they and they do health check ins during the year and they don't let the guys go out and party as much as other teams do. Like it's a it's a grinding environment. Well, one of the the beat guy was saying, look, I was in that locker room every night. He said, let me tell you, it was not a pleasant environment in there. Like there were times in the middle of that season where it seemed like this season was like in peril. Like they were like they didn't like each other. You remember um, this team. This Heat team, you think about late in the season. I mean, they were 32 and 29 when they came to Philadelphia and play. They beat the Sixers to go 33 and 29. It was in Philly. And then we're like, man, here come the Heat. And then the next night, they played again, and Philadelphia blasted them down there in Miami, 119 to 96. They were 33 and 30 on that night. And it was like, when is this Heat team? They would win one, lose one. Win two, lose two. Win two, lose three. To end the season, they went six, uh, three and three at the end of the year. They lost three, they won three, then they lost one, then they won one. This was a team that just never got anything going. The whole season, they just never got anything going. And here's where a big thing is for them. Victor Oladipo. You think about Oladipo, right? This guy was an all-star for them. Yes, he was. Uh, not for them, but, I mean, he was an all-star player. He, he, that was his career, yes. And they lost Oladipo. For the year, he's done. He hasn't played. Tyler Hero, he's another guy. He averages 20 points a game for them, and he has been out. He hasn't played at all. Correct. They're losing two big-time players for them, and here they are in the conference finals. That is pretty unbelievable. And I think a lot of that is what we talk about with Doc Rivers. This is where I talk about the coach and having an impact on not in-game is, I guess it's a little bit in-game, but the guy's not in the game, is all the games the Sixers wasted the development of Paul Reed by playing Montez Harrell, by playing DeAndre Jordan the year before. Just imagine, if Paul Reed played all those DeAndre Jordan minutes last year, how much further along he would be. You know what I'm saying? And that is where I think you have to be able to develop these guys. And the Sixers, I mean, the Heat right now, Tyler Hero gets hurt, I got Duncan Robinson. Oladipo gets hurt, I got Gabe Vincent. These guys have played minutes during the regular season on Tuesday night in February. Those guys are going out, they might lose the game. They might lose that game on Tuesday night, February. But as a fan, you have to be willing to let them lose that game and not complain about it. And that's hard sometimes for you to do, right? They're saying, we don't care about Tuesday night, February. I'm letting Gabe Vincent get minutes. I don't care about Tuesday night, February. I'm letting Duncan Robinson get more minutes. Whereas in Philly, if they did that, you guys would blast the coach. Why are you playing this guy so many minutes? He sucks. Because you have to. You develop these guys. That's how you do it. Look what the Heat are doing. Sports Bash Live, 97.3 ESPN, the free mobile app. Now, Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN, South Jersey's sports leader. Channel the top, Sports Bash, 5 o'clock coming up. Uh, Coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. Uh, four biggest questions facing the Sixers this offseason. I'll attempt to answer them. We've got uh, Hendrick Perkins on why the Heat have had success in the postseason. Here's what he said 
about why he thinks the Heat have had success in the postseason. Take a listen again to what Kendrick Perkins said. When I look at this team and I'm listening to Jimmy Butler, he did an interview after game one and I felt it in my soul. He was talking about the love that they have in the locker room, the belief that they have in the locker room, the belief that Eric Spolster and Pat Riley put into every single player on that roster and it gave me chills. And I actually tweeted, I said, this was the best post game interview this season on how he spoke on this team and how they care for one another. Because when you care for one another outside of basketball, then it's going to roll over in between the lines. And I wonder, like he says that, when did that all happen is the question. Because they did not have a good regular season, right? And I'm wondering if the fans are seeing what's going on with the Heat. and Are they stepping off the gas a little bit? And I doubt that that will happen. If the team's not playing well, you're going to be critical. You're not going – like, look at the Phillies right now. People think this team stinks. Do you think Rob Thompson cares about beating the Arizona Diamondbacks on Monday, May 22nd? You're going to look back at this game and be like, oh, man, I shouldn't have played Dalton Guthrie on that Monday. Like, I, I see people complaining, like, why would this guy be in the lineup? Like, you can't play guys 162 games. Like, it doesn't happen anymore. That means Dalton Guthrie. Now, you could be mad at the GM for not having a better option than Dalton Guthrie. But if the manager is going to write the lineup out every day, he's got to put guys in the lineup. He can't play the same guy every day. He's got to put Dalton Guthrie. If he's one of the guys the GM has given you as a 26-man roster, that guy's got to play. He's got to play 50 times because look what we're talking about with the Heat. Their guys got hurt. Guys stepped right in. Why? Because they got opportunity to play during the regular season. If Dalton Guthrie never gets a chance to start, if someone gets hurt, what good is he? So you got to play Josh Harrison. You know, you got to give him a handful of the bats. You got to give Dalton Guthrie a handful of the bats. You got to give Cody Clements a handful of the bats. You can't just have him sit and rot all season long over the 162, which means some days you're going to have to, I don't want to say give up a game, but give your team a less chance to win. And that's what I think what Perkins said there is why the Heat are where they are is because Gabe Vincent gets to play on Tuesday night in February and Duncan Robinson, who only played about 15 minutes a game this year. But when given the opportunity, he, he got to play. And then when Tyler Hero got hurt, they had somebody ready to go. I think the other side of it that we have not brought up yet, which I think is important at least, is the fact that it's it's how – Teams prioritize the people on the roster. You know, the fan looks at their fantasy team, right? They look at their fantasy football team or the fan says, well, you know, I know this guy is good because I saw him play last year. Or they don't always value the people on the team. And I think it's one of the things the Eagles don't get enough credit for is the Eagles have gone out of their way to value the character of the people in their locker room, to have good locker room chemistry, to have good people on the team. And I think one of the things with the Heat is is that they have gone out of their way to put quality types of people on this roster, and they have prioritized the idea. You know, Legler, the the emailer who emailed you in the 3 o'clock hour you mentioned, Mike, talked about, you know, Eric Spolster doesn't ask guys to do stuff they can't do. He says, I know what you can do. I only want you to do what you do best. And I don't know if every NBA team treats their roster like that. Yeah, I don't think so. But look at, well, I know the Sixers didn't. Definitely not the Sixers. The Sixers, 
did not value their roster on Tuesday night in February. They tried to win that game. I also don't think the Sixers per se... And by the way, they did win the game most of the times. They did. They won a lot of games this past year. They won the most games in a regular season since Allen Iverson was running around. So we know that they valued winning, but the problem is is that winning is not necessarily the end-all, be-all in a... Ah, but that's not what we were taught. Well, listen. Winning it all is the end-all, be-all, but winning the game... Out of 82, you're not going to win them all. It's impossible. You play to win the games. That's what we've all been taught. No, that's what the football coach said. <laughs> football 16 games. The Heat ripped the heart out of the Celtics in this series. In my mind, it's over. I don't think the Celtics will win tomorrow night. I do think the Lakers have a shot to win the night. The Lakers have at least been somewhat competitive. Here's the problem. They're not better than the Nuggets. Definitely not. They're not better than the Nuggets are. We just don't watch the Nuggets enough, but I told you this months ago. This Nuggets team is really good. They got a two-time MVP. The kid Murray is an emerging star, and their role players fill their roles. They've got two stars on that team. The Lakers' two stars are getting outplayed by the Nuggets' two stars. This is the Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN. Now, live inside the Matt Black Kia Studios, here's Mike Gill. Final hour of the show, Mike Gill with you till 6. Sports Bash has game 4 tonight, coming up after game night tonight. I've got... Uh, Michael Kasky Blomain over at CBS Sports has four big questions facing the Sixers this offseason. I'm going to do my best to answer them because I tell you what, I don't know if it's just four questions. <laughs> I'll tell you what, this team is kind of stuck in a weird spot. I was talking to someone on the phone today, and he said, you know, hey, Sixers, blah, 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 time to blow it up. I said, eh, I don't know if I'm there. You know, the Sixers are at a spot where – it's hard to say just blow it up because, you know, they have a lot invested in this team. They have a lot invested in part of what I thought made the process what it was, was they did things that most teams weren't willing to try or do. And when you do those things, your goal is to try to get a player that is an MVP level player. And they achieved that goal. So now that you have that player, how many shots at a championship do you want to take with that guy? Here's the problem, as I see it. When do you come to the realization that the guy who's the poster child for the process might not be the right piece to the process? You know what I'm saying? Whereas you got this player. That's what you set out to do. Like it or not, mistakes made and all the mistakes that this team made. They still got the guy. They got the guy. Joel Embiid, the question is, what makes this so disappointing is now we're starting to ask ourselves, is he the right guy? And that is the hard part to come to terms with. I think is you're starting to ask yourself the question, is the most important guy the guy? That is where you have to, I think if you're the Sixers, you have to look at yourself in the mirror. And that's why I think blowing it up is a hard answer or a hard sell. Because you're staring at yourself in the mirror and saying, I got the guy. I lost. I got losses built up and over the years with all those losses I got the player that I wanted I got Joel Embiid 
he was the MVP of the league. That's what I set out to get. I set out to get an MVP-level player, and I got an MVP-level player. But the loss is disappointing because the MVP-level player was not the best player on the floor in the playoffs. So now you start to ask yourself the questions, is the guy that I thought was the guy not the guy? And I think you're starting to teeter into that territory, but that's why you can't break it up because you don't have a definitive answer to that question, or do you? Listen, my perspective is is that you part of the, the decision about is he the guy is how long are you willing to wait to find out? Well, that's you know, what I'm saying. You you don't have a definitive answer on that question yet, but well, then it goes what you just said. Well, how long are you willing to give him to find out whether or not he can answer the question for you? You know, for example, and I know it's a flawed example, but I'm giving it for a specific reason. You know, Hakeem Olajuwon, he didn't win a championship till he was 31, 32 years old. Yeah, it took Jordan retiring. Okay. Not ideal. But the thing is, he wasn't even at the NBA Finals yet. He never even was in the NBA Finals before that point. So... Are you willing to give Embiid until he's in his 30s before you make a decision if you're going to move on or not, considering his injury history? You know, guys like Elijah Wan and, and those other big men of years past, Shaq, all those guys, whoever you want to name, they didn't have the injury history that Embiid has coming into his 29, 30, 31 age seasons. Even David Robinson only had two seasons cut short by injury before Tim Duncan came along. So, you know, for Embiid, do you hold his track record of health against him? Has to be factored in if you're the Sixers. No question. You know, they have to feel the same way, way the fans do. Here's a guy who got us to the playoffs as the MVP. We are a top four seed, right. and here we are, and he's hurt again. They have to feel that way. I mean, just because you work in the front office of an organization doesn't mean you don't have human uh, elements to your thought process. Sure, and I, I wonder, I wonder how they feel about what the future looks like because the Sixers are in a very weird predicament because as you said they invested all this time into getting this mvp player they finally got him but now you're stuck and so are you willing to stay stuck here's the thing are you stuck or are there moves you can make within the confines of what you have to get you unstuck and i think like michael caskey blomain has these four questions and i think some of the questions if you can answer them, let's start with the question number one, okay? Number one, who will be the next coach? Ah, how important is this hire? Incredibly important. Can this guy get the most out of Joel Embiid? Can you maximize Joel Embiid's two- to three-year window here? To me, that's the prerequisite requirement, is it not? Isn't the prerequisite requirement is can you come in here and – Take Embiid in this organization to the next level. And it's the most difficult thing to find in a coach. What are you going to do to encapsulate what this guy hasn't been able to get out of him? It's not the injury history. It's what I think the Miami Heat get to this point for. They hold the 12th man on the roster as accountable as they do the first man on the roster. Absolutely. Do the Sixers hold... Furkan Korkmaz as accountable as they do Joel Embiid. I doubt it. I doubt it. 
I agree with that. That is a big deal. So this guy has to be the guy who not only holds Kirk Korkmaz as accountable as Embiid, he also holds Embiid as accountable as Korkmaz, if that makes sense. And is is that guy out there? It's a tough – and that's what I'm saying. How do you quantify that? It's like – so back when we were in college, we used to play John Madden football or NBA Live. Okay, mm-hmm. let's go to NBA Live. Yeah, EA Sports, NBA Live. Sure. Yep. NBA Live. Antoine Walker was on the cover. Whoever. And we would sit in our room and play this game morning, noon, and night. And one of my roommates was not a video gamer. He just sat there and watched us because he thought it was humorous that we would get so into these games. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And, you know, I would be one team that was better than the other team, and the guy would beat me, whatever. And my roommate would, like, mock me or mock whoever lost the game. And he'd say, you know what they don't have on those meters? They don't have a, a meter for heart. They don't tell you how much heart the player's skill set is. You know, it was like a funny way of saying, like, hey, you don't know what's inside these guys' chest. You know, right. you're playing a stupid video game. They should have a meter for heart. And you're like, get out of my face, dude. <laughs> I just lost 20 bucks in a schmuck. <laughs> right? right? So he always say, though, they don't have a meter for heart on that guy. But in the coaching search here, you don't have a meter for how much – that guy can motivate another human being. You also don't have a meter for how much that human being wants to be motivated. You would have to say, I've been around Joel Embiid enough if I'm the organization, that I think there's more in him that we can get out. You would have to know that more than I would. But here's the thing. Did you think that Doc Rivers got the most out of Joel Embiid if you're the Philadelphia 76ers? Obviously, your answer is no. Yet, Joel Embiid said, I don't want you to fire Doc Rivers. I just won the MVP with this guy. Like you said before, well, the Bucks fired Jason Kidd, and Giannis Antetokounmpo didn't want them to fire Jason Kidd, but Mike Budenholzer made him an MVP player. Well, Doc Rivers made Joel Embiid an MVP player. Right. So, if I'm the Sixers, why do I feel that I got a player, a coach, who got the most out of my best player, but I also don't think that coach is the right guy? Do you think that there's somebody else out there that can get even more out of Embiid? And I think that's a tough sell. Do you buy into the idea that this it was easier for the Sixers to let go of Rivers knowing who was available in this coaching arena? Well, we had talked about this before, I think, with Paul uh, Hudrick and talked about, did the Sixers nudge their decision based on who was available? Hey, look at the guys who are available right now. If we're going to do something, this might be the time to do it. Because mm-hmm. if we get knocked out on the second round next year, Nick Nurse isn't available. Mike Budenholzer is not available. Monty Williams isn't available. I would imagine all these guys get jobs. I would assume as much. So do you see someone that's in this current crop of coaches that are available make the decision based on, hey, we like any of these six guys, and we don't think these six – I would imagine Dan Tony's available next year. I can't imagine someone else hires him. I'd be pretty surprised. Um, how many openings are there? Uh, let me count off the top of my head. you got Phoenix, you got Milwaukee, you got Toronto, you got Philadelphia. You have – Houston's been filled. I think it's Detroit. Filled. Detroit's open, I Detroit's think. Detroit's open, yes. So that's, that's five. five. I think there might be one or two more, maybe maybe five, but there's at least five 
the Sixers have six candidates on their list. So one of those guys would have to still be available. Correct. So you would have to say, hey, we are happier with any of those six more so than taking a shot with the guy that we have again. So that's a, it's a weird dynamic in that Embiid was the MVP, but you think there's someone out there that maybe can get more out of him. So, Mike, if I could ask you the question, if Daryl Morey called you on the phone right now and asked you who are your top three candidates, who would they be? I really don't – this one's so hard because it's funny. It goes back to, you know, you have three guys who won a championship. Frank Vogel, Nick Nurse, Mike Budenholzer. Do those three automatically become your top three because they won titles? Do I say, you know what? Frank Vogel got a chance to be around LeBron James. What could he bring to our organization? It's a fair question. Okay. Nick Nurse. He had a shot to be around Kawhi Leonard. What was he able to get from Kawhi Leonard? Here's the thing with Nick Nurse that I'm struggling with. It's the whole how much does the coach mean? They won a title. They had Dwayne Casey. Casey won 60 games. He was the coach of the year. He ends up getting fired. But Nick Nurse walked into Kawhi Leonard. Right. So do I think that Nick Nurse, now that Kawhi Leonard walked away, what have his teams been? They've been these scrappy teams that he's just gotten a lot out of. Does that make him a great coach? Or does it mean I go back to you can push players who aren't stars. Correct. Are you going to push that hard on James Harden and Joel Embiid? Eh, I have a hard time with that. But maybe they need to be pushed. You know, maybe maybe it's like the thing in baseball where it's like you know you, you go from a you know a dictatorship to a more player friendly coach, and then vice versa when you're changing managers. Is it the same thing? Yeah. With basketball, do you say, hey, we had a guy in Doc who was a former player who you know had his way of saying, I'm going to trust you guys to win the game. Do they need a guy like Nick Nurse who's going to maybe get on them a little more? Then you got Budenholzer. You would say, hey, this guy was around Giannis, and look at the work ethic that guy has. What can Mike Budenholzer bring that he instilled into Giannis to make him the player that he became? Because Giannis was a raw player that had a ton of untapped potential that Jason Kidd wasn't getting out of him. You could also throw with Giannis. Giannis, like Embiid, is a guy not from this country. He first learned to play basketball under very, uh, shall we call it, abnormal circumstances. And when they both were drafted, they were both considered projects. So is Mike Boonholzer a kind of guy that can say to the Sixers, look, I know what it takes to take one of these kind of guys from point A to point B? Well, let me tell you this. If you said each guy got a phone call from Daryl Morey, what's their pitch? Nick Nurse's pitch is, I was around Kawhi Leonard, and that guy was relentless. And I what, what I took from him is how to get the most out of a James Harden and get the most out of this roster. Look what I get from Fred Van Vliet. Look what I get from Pascal Siakam. Right. Look what I get from Gary Trent Jr. I mean – I'm going to get the most out of every guy on this team. And you might say, oh, okay. Is that a good enough sell? I don't know. Mike Budenholzer, pitch me. I had Giannis Antetokounmpo. You saw a guy who was a raw player, who was just a freak of nature, but didn't really have 
the, 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 the basketball skills. I got the skills. I salute, you know, I got the most out of this guy. I turned him into an MVP player. I can get more out of Joel Embiid. Look what I did with Brooke Lopez. This is a guy who was a one dimensional center that I turned into a stretch who, who helped unlock a championship for us. Look what Chris Middleton brought to this team. I gave this guy the confidence to be the player late in a, in a NBA finals that could hit the big shot. I can get that confidence into James Harden. He can hit that big shot. I know it's in him and I can get it. Okay, good sell. Frank Vogel. You know, hey, I kept the team together inside that bubble. I had LeBron James and I learned a heck of a lot by being around the best player on planet Earth. Just what it takes to be a championship level team. You know, that guy was around the very best players. He was around Eric Spolster. I took stuff from him that I can bring here. I would hope that Vogel, see, here's the problem with Vogel, and I talk about Vogel a lot. He is my poster child for what the NBA coach means to a team. This doesn't diminish any of these guys. But Frank was in Indiana, had a good roster. He was a good coach. He went to Orlando, had a bad roster. He was a bad coach. He didn't elevate that Orlando team at all. And then he went to L.A., he had LeBron and Anthony Davis, and they won a title. So I don't know what to make out of Frank Vogel other than, hey, he went to L.A., he got a team, won them a championship, and then he got fired. I think unfairly, they gave him a rotten uh, hand that he had to get dealt with. But you would think that maybe a championship-level coach could navigate through that rotten hand a little bit better, no? Again, we don't know... One of the problems with these coaches is we also know all that goes into the background. Like, if you ever read those books about, like, you know, the 80s Lakers and about what happened with their multiple coaching changes during that magic run. I mean, they went through, like, three or four coaches. So, you know, stuff gets weird behind the scenes. Then you got Monty Williams. What's your pitch? Well, I changed the culture in Phoenix, a down-rotten franchise where the owner was thought to be a jerk that nobody wanted to work in that organization. I got us to 63 wins on the precipice of a championship in Phoenix, which has never been done before. So if I'm Daryl Morey, he said a word that I'm very intrigued by. I changed the culture of that franchise. And is that the moving point for you? Well, is that the question for the Sixers? Is theirs a talent problem or a culture problem? I think that's the question that the Sixers organization has to stare at themselves in the mirror and answer. Do we have a talent deficiency or do we have a culture issue? If it's a culture issue, then it sounds like Monty Williams should be the number one candidate. Based on those conversations we just had, because I think the best thing that all those other coaches can pitch. Now, you can make a case for Budenholzer who said, hey, I was in Atlanta, for God's sakes, and we won 60 games. You know, I don't know what the culture setting. You know, there's a lot of talk about Budenholzer being kind of a prickly guy. Yeah, Boone, there's his big negative is the fact that Budenholzer's the guy that people feel like he kind of wore people out a little bit. That he, after a while, was a guy that. Guess he, what? So what? Do you take two or three shots with that guy and say, "We know he's going to wear us out, but we'll take two or three shots with him before he wears us out." I mean, that's basically what the Bucks did. The Bucks basically said, "Hey, you want us a championship? We'll give you two more years. Two more years is done. You're done." 
and by the way, there's a negative for each one of these guys. You know, Monty Williams, the negative is, is that he couldn't get along with DeAndre Ayton. Does that concern you because your star player is a big man? Yeah, I think Ayton's a... Ayton's a... People say Ayton's a bit of a crybaby, so... Well, you know, he's a number one pick in the draft, so he's kind of got this, uh, you know, I'm better than maybe I am thought. Maybe he doesn't like the way he's being used down there. Look, you got Booker, Paul, you had Bridges, now you trade Bridges out. Aiton, offensively, doesn't fit today's game. Right? Right. He's not a guy that's going to sit, and he's not a stretch. He's not going to sit in the corner, pop in, he's not... Brooke Lopez, you know, where he's elevated his game where he can move out. So I don't think Aiton has the legs to stand on in this conversation. Yeah. I mean, look, the, the thing is that people say Monty Williams had a great relationship with Chris Paul, Kevin Durant, and Devin Booker. So, you know, we know he knows how to be with star players. He knows, he knows how to elevate guys like Cameron Payne. The question with Nick Nurse is he's a guy who ran his boys into the ground. You know, he played Siakam and Van Vliet so many minutes. The last couple of years that people said that he basically burned them out. Are you concerned that Nurse is going to come to Philadelphia and burn the guys out? Well, guess what? This goes back to the Budenholzer thing. Do I get three years from Nurse to give me the best three years you got? Because this is all I got out of this crew. You know, you're at a stage now where you're only, you only have about three years left. You're not like in a Boston situation where those guys are young players that right. you can keep taking chance after chance after chance with. If you're going with Harden and Embiid, you're only getting about three chances at this thing. So you better get the guy, even if he burns you out after three years, because the whole team's probably getting broken up. So I think you do have a window of a guy who maybe only gives you three years, but if his three years are the best three years you get, and we took our shot and we didn't get it. So so whose short window would you rather put up with, Nick Nurse's or Boonholder's? Because Nurse's issue was... How he ran the players. Boonholzer's issue was him getting along with the front office. Well, and then there's a lot of talk about Boonholzer. You know, he didn't make a lot of in-game adjustments. People go to that. And I ask the question off the court, is he prepared off the floor? Does he do things his way? Boonholzer's big thing was they went after 60 wins. They put the pedal to the metal and tried to win his many. And then I think, you know, he did learn from that and he tried to pull off that the last year or two. Where they didn't win like 60 plus games. They kind of, but you know, they all have something. Now, Mike D'Antoni, give me your pitch. <laughs> well, your best, you know, you're, you're one of your two stars. He loves playing for me. You know, we had a ton of success together in Houston. We were just missing that second player. I had James Harden as my first player on this team. He's a second player. Imagine what we could do together if he's the second player. I had him as my only player. You didn't give me anybody else in Houston. All I had was him and a bunch of jamokes. I got uh, uh, Eric Gordon, P.J. Tucker. Clint Capella. There you go. I can't win with those guys, but I almost did. You give me Joel Embiid, oh, okay, and that's something I could do with. And wouldn't you know, Joel, two years ago when you hired a three years ago when he hired a coach, he wanted me to be the coach. Is he too buddy-buddy with this crew? The other problem is the negative against D'Antonio is he has now coached two MVPs. He could never get to the finals with them. Steve Nash in Phoenix and then James Harden in Houston. Yeah, well, guess what? The James Harden thing, I never thought those teams were good enough to get to the finals. Sure. But the Steve Nash thing, I would probably say the same thing. I mean, you could argue that the Phoenix teams might have had more depth than the Houston teams because of who was on those teams. But again, like you just said, the, the teams just weren't good enough. But the question is, do you have – the question you asked last week, Mike, do you have the pieces 
to make this team that much better than it was last year. Uh, Chip from Delaware says, Jeff Van Gundy, can he be coaxed out of coaching retirement to hold the players accountable? Uh, he's not part of the six. And he says, why limit the search? I would answer, why limit the search? It's a fine question. But they've already said those six and it's nobody outside. So Van Gundy would not be a candidate. Would you be able to get him out of retirement? I don't think so. I mean, why would you leave what he does to deal with this fan base? You got <laughs> lunatics out there. <laughs> Come on. Would you want Jeff Van Gundy? No, nah, I think he's out of the game for too long. I like Jeff the broadcaster at this point. I, I think that he uh, he's one of those guys that had a shelf life, and uh, he never uh, tried to keep his shelf life going. Put that way. Uh, so that was question number one of four. We'll do two, three, and four coming up next. Because one, I think, is probably the most important one. you got to get someone to change the culture of this team and this roster. If the roster is going to be the same, then you got to change the culture of the roster. Sports Bash Live 97.3 ESPN. Hey, I want to tell you about my friends down at Trio North Wildwood. They're doing a little change to the menu because we're getting to the summertime. They're expanding the menu back by popular demand. From what I'm told, I wasn't on the menu the night I went. Is the meatloaf back by popular demand? The new menu item and new days now open Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Romantic dinner, dinner for two, out with friends, big old party. They can host it all for you. Place is very big. BYOB, 700 New Jersey Avenue, North Wildwood. Make your reservations today on Resi, Casual Fine Dining, TrioNW.com. Now, back on 97.3 ESPN. 531, so... uh Flexing Thursday night football games just passed 24 to 8. The Eagles were one of the teams that voted yes on flexing Thursday night football games. Chiefs, Ravens also voted yes. So you're going to get Thursday night football flexing this season. Apparently, you've got to have 28 days notice. So about a month notice, I guess, to... Let the teams in the fan base know. You all right with that? I'm all right with it, but I know someone's going to complain about it because if the 49ers spent three months complaining about a quarterback thing, then I know somebody in season is going to complain about this for 28 days. Yeah, I'm surprised, 24 to 8, you know, that you (laughs) – that well, yeah, you got to have eight teams, obviously. You said people are going to complain about it. Yeah, there's eight teams that said, no, I don't want to do this. So my question, I guess, really is, how many times are they going to utilize this? Uh, owners that oppose the Thursday night football game uh, flexing, they raised a bunch of concerns that had travel logistics and the impact on fans. Right. That was what they said. Hey, this is going to have travel problems if, like, we have to change our flights and do all the hotel room configurations. Yeah, for example, Andrew Brand talked about on his podcast about how he his one of his jobs with the Packers was he was the guy who made the logistical plans for all the traveling, and he said that there was a lot that went into, hey, how far are we traveling? How many people are traveling on our traveling party? Where are we landing? Where are we? How are we getting to and from the hotel? So now you're taking something that's planned ahead back in 
May and June and upending the whole thing within a month. Yeah, it puts you in a situation where um, only two flexes are allowed during the season, according to Adam Schefter. They must be done within 28 days advance. Teams cannot play two away Thursday night football games. So there's a lot of variables here that I just wonder how many times throughout the course of the year you're going to say, let's flex this Thursday night game this year. It feels like it's almost a insurance policy just in case. Like, if you have a team like the Rams. Well, let me, uh, when can they start flexing the Thursday night games? Uh, let me double check that. Thursday night football flexing past, but you can only, Jeff Kerr, I think, posted it on his for the last five weeks of the season. So the last five weeks of the season, so you're going. Week 13 to 17. So week 13, you can start flexing the Thursday night game. So the Thursday night game is Seattle-Dallas. You're not flexing that game. Probably not. I mean, Dallas is on Thursday night. It's the week after they play on Thanksgiving. Right. So I would imagine that game's not getting flexed. What's week 14? Week 14, you got New England-Pittsburgh. Now, that might get flexed. Because if both of those teams are out of the postseason. I don't think they. I think, though, they would both be in the wild card hunt. Also, Pittsburgh voted against flexing Thursday Night Football. Because I think you're going to get two te- – those two teams are going to be like miss, meh. They'll be kind of like barely in it to the end. Right, like where that game will have some meaning. You would think. Chargers-Vegas. That probably stays. You got Herbert. Vegas is a kind of a national team. Jimmy G's now playing for them. I don't know that he's a draw. Well, but I mean, he's a better quarterback than then you Jared, got- Jared Stim. Saints Rams that might be one. Yeah, I'm not. The, are, are the Saints you a playoff team, Mike? Does Derek Carr make that much of a difference? They could win that division. They're probably the best. They probably have the best quarterback in the division. Yeah, they do. But Derek not, Carr, the mess you have in Tampa Bay, whatever Bryce Baker Young Mayfield. in Carolina, Carolina. I guess it's Desmond Ritter in Atlanta. Right. They have the best, most accomplished quarterback. That's not saying much. So, yeah. But I think the Rams are going to struggle this year. So that one you might say, let's see what else, what what other options are on the table that. um, So we have at least one. Yeah, they could say, hey, we want the, we would like that. um, (laughs) (laughs) It's not a great week. You got Detroit, Minnesota. Well, Detroit might win the division this year. Well, I was saying Minnesota won 13 games last year. They might be in the mix. That could be a flexed game. That's what I just said. Are you listening to this? Are we all? Are well, we you said meh. Well, it's a meh schedule that that's the best oh, option. Oh, meh schedule. Yeah. You got Dallas, Miami, but I doubt Fox is giving that up. It's a 420. That's the 425 game. It's too even healthy at that point. Um, and then on week 17. On Thursday night football, what's the game there? It's Jets Browns. I mean, the Browns are probably not making the playoffs this year. Well, I mean, you ever without with Watson, you don't know what to expect. I mean, if Watson's the player he was in Houston, that team's not bad. Well, if he's that player, then it's it's a win winner chicken dinner. I mean, come on. Then they don't have one in week uh, eighteen, right? Because every game is on um, Saturday or Sunday because of the playoff scenarios. The last. Sunday of the season, it's TBD for everybody. 
So there's no Thursday night, nothing there. Everything is right. But the last Thursday night is week 17. So I, again, I mean, I don't know how many times you're going to have to flex that game out. I mean, I really only see two. What about you? I mean, yeah, Jets, Cleveland. If Deshaun Watson is good, then that team could be solid. I mean, they're in a division with Pittsburgh, who's just okay, Baltimore, who's pretty good, and Cincinnati, who's really good. So I think it's far-fetched to think they're going to be a division champion, but they might be in the playoff mix. Right. Now, the AFC, the East has got four, is probably three and a half deep. I think New England's a step down. So they got three teams in the East. You got three teams in the Central. The West, you probably have two, two, two and a half, maybe. Because it's Kansas City, Chargers, and then Denver. Yeah, kinda. Denver's like a half. Yeah. Because Sean, Sean Payton. Uh, and then know. you got the North, or the South, I mean, with uh, Indianapolis. They're out. Uh, Jacksonville, Tennessee, and uh, Houston. So you got really two. one and a half. I would say two. Yeah, well, you you say two. I'll be the other guy. All right, that's fine. <laughs> one and a half. I got one and a half. <laughs> I mean, I don't know who else I'm going with. Uh, but so, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not surprised they flexed it, but... Um, George says the last five weeks of the season, to me, no playoff spot should ever be decided by a Thursday night football game. Here's the thing. I don't know what Amazon Prime's ratings were because you don't get them. Right. We got limited numbers, streaming numbers, because it's not graded the same way the others were. But they said that the numbers were typically somewhere between, you know, 9 and 12 million. Yeah. I mean, and I, I – like – it's a football game on Thursday night. You're going to get nine, nine to twelve people, million people watching it, which is more than than is watching anything else. Right. So I mean, I mean, what does flexing really mean? Except for, I don't know. Maybe maybe you're trying to make sure that you know Amazon doesn't have a reason to. You know, I think the only deal, time you I would guess? really see a flex situation is if you just have a total. Total stinker. Like a three-win team playing a four-win team. Right, I can see that. Like yeah. if, if two teams got so injured that they were both just like, like I said, the Rams last year. The Rams were so injured by the end of the year. It was, can we fly Baker Mayfield in for Thursday Yeah, night? like if you get to this week, uh, if you get to the Thursday night games, you have a team that's just like on our third quarterback and they're playing against a team that's on their second, like that kind of stuff. By the way, the 2025 draft, this is a little surprising to me, by the way. Oh, yeah? It's going to be at Lambeau Field at Green Bay. That's right. So they're doing it at Lambeau. I say it's surprising because Green Bay is not a huge city. I mean, there's not a whole heck of a lot to do there. No, but they they have said in the past that they are treating the NFL draft as for the, the cities that can't have the actual Super Bowl because they're too cold, that they will have offer them the NFL draft. Yeah, I'm just saying, like, you go to the draft, you go to a city because, like, you're there and there's things to do. Because, like, you're not hanging out at the draft the whole time. I would hope not. You know, like, your team drafts, say, one, and then maybe you leave and go do things in the town. And there's not a whole heck of a lot of things to do in Green Bay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, are you just going to hang out at Lambeau Field. Whole, I guess if you've never been to Lambeau Field and you can't go for a game, this would be a great opportunity to get there. 
Sure. I mean, they're, they're holding it in the stadium. Now it's like a tourist opportunity. Yeah. Uh, somebody tweeted this out. This would have been helpful. He said, by new rule, these are the games that can be booted from Thursday Night Football. And he has a graphic with the five games. <laughs> <laughs> Which one is getting flexed out? Seattle, Dallas, no. New England, Pittsburgh, doubtful. You got Pittsburgh and New England, two pretty good fan bases. Right. Chargers, Raiders, I would say no. The one game that I think would, would be the one is the Saints and the Rams. I just don't think the Rams are going to win the division at all this year. No, I think they're going to be one of the worst four teams in the entire league. I don't think they're going to win the division. Hello, Captain Obvious. They're going to be one of the worst four teams in the league. I don't think they're going to be one of the four worst. I think there's a chance the Cardinals could be worse than them. Okay, that's that's fair. But they could still be one of the worst four teams in the league, and the Cardinals could be one of the three worst teams in the league. I think the Rams, they just are they're they're old, they're beat up, they have no draft picks. I mean, they they're just not a good team. Now, Stafford being back helps them. It helps a lot. And it feels Cooper good Cup's to be talking be about some football. I mean, to me, you'll get the worst teams in the NFC next year. It's probably going to, at least in my opinion, you know, I could be wrong, obviously. But to me, it's probably going to be some assortment of Cardinals, Packers. Uh, the I worst have, teams? Yeah, probably the Bucks. I mean, they feel like they're falling apart, right? You want the ESPN.com. Power ranking? Power index? Sure, why not? You've got number one, Chiefs. Number two, Buffalo. Number three, Philadelphia. Number four, Bengals. And number five, 49ers. No problem there. Your Next. bottom five teams. Texans. Yep. Cardinals. Yep. Buccaneers. Mm-hmm. Colts. Ooh. Titans. Wow, they put the Titans that low. Yeah. I don't know what formula they used here. The football power index rankings? Yeah, it's probably some proprietary formula made by somebody that Billy Schwein hates. Yeah, the Rams, by the way, are 23rd on the list. So a little higher on the list than I would have put them. Listen, I think that Stafford and Cooper Cup being healthy next year is going to make a huge deal for that. Yeah, I can go with that. Like, hey, they have Stafford back, get Cup. They could be like an 8-9 and nine team next year. Um, Sure. That division, you got Seattle. San Francisco. Does and then, Seattle take a step back, you think? No, I think they take a step forward. Yeah. Well, I guess a lot depends on the quarterback. I know we were talking, we were getting into those extra Sixers questions. We'll probably save them for tomorrow. Manana, senor. Yeah, I mean, we still got three questions left to get to, and I think it was a good thought-provoking thing. Maybe we'll talk to Paul about it tomorrow. Ask uh, him the questions. On the show, and I'll, I'll continue to try to. I, I definitely, you know, looking at <laughs> – um did you see this? Everybody's um, confused, don't know what to think of Trey Turner. He has more home runs in RBI in the World Baseball Classic than he has for 45 games with the Phillies this year. I mean, it doesn't surprise me, but, you know, the problem with Trey Turner is I feel like he's the kind of guy that people had these, like, like these unreasonably high expectations Because of the him. World Baseball Classic. Like, most people that are Phillies fans knew of Trey Turner. He was a very good player in Washington. He was a really good player in L.A. And then we, you, you spend $300 million to get him to come here. You're thinking you're getting, like, another MVP caliber player. Right. You're thinking that you're getting... Which isn't unreasonable to think, by the way. Right. You're you're thinking you're getting a Chase Utley type of player playing that infield. Right? 
yeah, I mean, you think you're getting a guy who's going to be the best player on the team or certainly the number two player on the team. And then you see him in the World Baseball Classic, and you're like, this guy's awesome. I mean, he's ripping homers. I don't know what and why this has been a problem. You know, we talked about with Bob earlier today, like some of his at-bats have just been not competitive. He doesn't have a look to him as a guy who just, like, enjoys playing baseball. Like, he just looks miserable. And you're thinking to yourself, like, does he have, like, did I make a mistake? Buyer's remorse? But I have to imagine that he's got a hot streak in him that is going to be, like, white hot, flaming hot. And when that happens... This team will go from the middle of the pack to the top of the pack. I don't think they're going to win the division. I've said all year, I don't think this is going to be a fun season. But he'll get hot, and Schwarber will get hot, and they will carry this team and get them out of the out of the muck. I mean, right will. now, Cody Clemens is hot. Whoever thought that comment was going to happen? A Phillies me. offense being led by Cody Clemens? Is that really <laughs> happening? Is he even in the lineup tonight? I don't think he is. I don't even think he's in the lineup tonight, but he was in hot for a few days there. Sports RBIs. Do you remembers are coming up on this uh, Monday? We'll get those for you on the other side. Cody Clements did not even play yesterday. When was he hot? How's he hot has he been? He had a home run on Saturday, didn't he? Did he have a home run on Saturday? Or was that Friday night? Uh, oh, that was the 12 3 game. Yeah, yeah the, the big blowout game where. Schwarber hit the bomb, and then Cody Clemens hit a bomb later. Yeah, Clemens was two for four with uh, the homer. His fourth. Jake Cave, by the way, down in the minors has been scorching hot. He's hitting like 450 down in the minors. Time to call him up. Is that what you're saying? Back up. All right, 457. Uh, four, we'll wrap up the show coming up next. Now, Spash on 97.3 ESPN. All right, 552, getting ready to get out of here. On a Monday, tomorrow, Frank's got the mailbag for the Phils. They're playing tonight. Zach Wheeler's on the mound for the Phils. Trying to make it three straight. Paul Hudrick on tomorrow's show as well. Uh, do you remember on this day, 2009, you should remember this because LeBron James hit a buzzer beater against the Magic in Game 2 of the Eastern Conference Finals. It was his first playoff buzzer beater of his career. Now, when you look back at LeBron James, he hit that buzzer beater in 2009. Would you say LeBron James' clutch playoff performer? I would say good playoff performer, great playoff performer. I don't know if I would say clutch. Because he's had some epic, epic nights as a performer in postseason. But I never thought of him as the guy taking a shot at the end of the game. Yeah, like he doesn't have that Michael Jordan game-winning shot moment, does he? No, not really. I mean... When they won the championship with Cleveland, it was Kyrie Irving hit the game-winning shot. What about Kyrie and LeBron pairing back up in L.A.? You down with that? I'm intrigued. I'd sign up for that. Would you rather see Kyrie in L.A. or Philadelphia? At this point, I think if I'm Philly, I'd probably take a shot. I would take a shot. He at least won a championship. You already know you might get some wacky stuff throughout, but guess what? I've already got wackiness. <laughs> it's called the fans, right? Well, it's everything. I mean, this organization has made so many different mistakes. Just give me the guy who maybe isn't there on Tuesday night in February, but he's there for me in the biggest moment. Right. He might not show up half the season, but he'll be there for all 16 games. It'll be great drama to talk about all season long. Sign you up, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, LeBron, to me, has not been some, like, clutch playoff performer. Like, he hasn't had that big shot moment. 
And he's not going to get one in these playoffs either. I mean, I think they're done. I think they'll win tonight, though. You like them tonight? I like them tonight. Just get the one game, but then they'll lose game five in Denver. Yeah, I think they lose game five in Denver as well. So I'll give them tonight. I think they lose game five. I think Boston's done. I think Boston's cooked. Yeah, I think Boston is out of gas. Done. I think it's Miami, Nuggets, and the TV network. So if they finish the series tonight and tomorrow, the finals will start till June 2nd. Yeah, it'll be an entire week off. That's like worst case scenario for the NBA. Worst, double worst case scenario. One week off and the two teams that you didn't want to play each other are matched up against each other. There's only one person who's excited about Miami going to the finals. That's Stephen A. Smith. Yeah, he gets to hang out. Miami. <laughs> All right, I get to hang out out of here. I'm done. That's it. Kaput. Josh has game night coming up next. Then the Western Conference Finals game number four is right here on 97.3 ESPN. Have a great rest of your night, everybody. I'll talk to you tomorrow at 2 on the Sports Bash.